Welcome into another episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast, episode 16 of season 5, recording here on a Wednesday night in College Station, Texas. I am your host, Tyler Dupnik. Please be joined once again, and as always, by my co-host and twin brother, Austin Dupnik. Austin, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Tyler. I'm happy to be here with you once again on another episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. Happy to get into the content we have on this episode today, or, or this evening rather, and hoping for a pretty simple episode from start to finish. And how are you doing tonight? Doing pretty good, you know, I feel like the week's been, it's going by kind of fast, maybe because it was kind of a short week, you know, we had July 4th on Monday and now we're already in the midway point of the week and uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, the weekend, certainly, we certainly have a lot to look forward to to some extent and we have plenty of content on this episode, but not nothing crazy, I think we both kind of talked about it off air, we expect a pretty crisp episode, but you never know with us, so uh, we'll go ahead and get started with the introduction, thanks for listening as always, you can subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you guys listen to our podcast, I appreciate if you would do that if you haven't already, and you can follow us on social media, as always you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at tdupe 25 and as always, you can follow me on Twitter at Doopy underscore Austin and on Instagram at AU underscore Doopy 10. And if you guys do not follow us on those handles yet, please do that because certainly that's where we always post any podcast related content. And absolutely, that's where we will post when the podcast is out there and available to listen to. And so if you guys don't follow us there uh, yet, then please do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll go ahead and get started uh, with the contest episode, and we'll go with the NBA first uh, this time around. Again, or not, oh, not this time, but yet again. I know last week and a couple of weeks we weren't really sure if the NBA was going to continue to lead off the show, but we figured it might as well because it still feels like it's kind of uh, you know in the headlines. Certainly, because NBA free agency started last Thursday, and then we've had a number of crazy things not you know necessarily happen yet. But we've had some trades, uh, some big trades, and some still some potential trades that might happen down the road. And free agency's gotten a little bit going. Not nothing crazy though, um, but we certainly have some content we want to talk about and so we'll just start with the NBA again it seems like we've done that so often here in season five might as well just do it again so uh, I think we'll start with uh, the trades that we've seen and we'll go back a little bit Uh, we'll go back to uh, you know late June I know we mentioned the Christian Wood trade from my Rockets to the Mavericks we never actually dove into it at all though because it kind of wasn't in the realm of what we were talking about at the time we have six trades and six free moves we can we're going to talk about here for a moment when we discuss the NBA and so we'll go back to June 24th um, whenever the Mavericks uh, traded for Christian Wood for my Rockets, and in return, my Rockets got uh, the number 26 overall pick, which again turned into the number 29 overall pick, which ultimately ended up being Ty Ty Washington, which we talked about all the draft stuff last week. Also got Sterling Brown, Marquise Chris, Boban Marjanovic, and Trey Burke. So none of those players really a big deal. This is all about the Mavericks, obviously, as a team that went to the Western Conference Finals last year and came up short to the eventual NBA champion Golden State Warriors. And Christian Wood was great for us. Uh, he was an, he was a great he was, a, he was an ultimate professional during a couple of really tough seasons for us. Um, certainly loved having Seawood in the building. He did a lot of great things for us. Very versatile big man. He's definitely going to help the Mavericks, obviously. And I know you have, I know you wanted to talk about more of the size that this had to do with. Oh, yeah, I definitely last. You know, of course, we saw in the postseason Mavericks. Certainly, you know, they were, you know, a series away from the finals. Obviously, they may have had a great season and went really far. But the biggest problem, I think, for them in the Western Conference Finals was their lack of size up front. And that was certainly a problem. And that's, I think, one of the biggest reasons why they struggled to win that series and ultimately only won one game in that series against the Warriors. And so, you know, and they understood that was a weakness for them. They wanted to address that in the offseason. We've seen that already uh, with them going out there and getting Christian Wood from your Rockets, which is a really exciting acquisition for the Mavericks to have him paired with Luka Doncic and the other guys that they have there. I think it's going to be a really great ad for the Mavericks. 
Yeah, and Christian Wood was a bargain for us whenever we got him in free agency a couple of years ago. And I, I, we mentioned this a little bit, but for me, it was all about the draft pick, which, again, we talked about the draft last week. It's not going to dive into that one any more than we just did. I think, you know, we'll see what kind of, I, I don't know how many of those players are going to stick around with the Rockets. Australian Brown used to play for us, you know, for a short stint there just recently. I think Chris did as well. So, again, uh, we'll see how that goes. But nothing big there necessarily, other than, of course, like I said, the Mavericks. And so uh, we'll move on to the next trade. I'll let you discuss this one. Yeah, the next one here happened on our birthday, June 30th, but it wasn't much of a birthday present for me as the as my San Antonio Spurs traded DeJounte Murray and Jock Landell to the Atlanta Hawks uh, for a number of picks, really. We got Daniel Gallinari back, but then we ended up waiving him, and then we got a 2023 first-round pick uh, via Charlotte from New York that's protected, and then a 2025 first-round pick, a 2026 pick swap, and then a 2027 first-round pick. And so we get the three first-round picks and the pick swap out of this deal, uh, but certainly for me, it was just sad to see DeJounte Murray go. I talked about on the podcast last week how uh, there were a lot of in- increased trade rumors uh, and, you know, in-, in terms of us maybe moving on from Murray and trying to get him, you know, trying to trade him so that we can, act, you know, kind of get some more picks in the building. And that came after the draft when we drafted a couple of guards. And I was hoping that maybe that wasn't going to happen. But I think as the days went on, those chances increased and it became apparent that he was probably going to get traded. And that's ultimately what happened. Uh, certainly going to miss DeJounte. He was an amazing spur for the six years that he was in San Antonio and was definitely you talked about Christian Wood being a professional with the Rockets and DeJounte Murray was a professional with the Spurs his entire time in San Antonio you know we drafted him late in the first round of 2016 and then you know he just really grew up there in San Antonio and was terrific for us you know he had that ACL injury uh, somewhere I think it was probably in the middle of his tenure and came back from that just even better and was great the past few years and had a career year last year was an all-star and you know was really looking forward to the future with him hopefully being the centerpiece you know for the new era of Spurs basketball, but obviously the Spurs felt differently and felt like we're still in this rebuild right now and felt like he was a piece that we could move on from and try to acquire more picks for the future. And I guess that's just what they wanted to do. I don't necessarily agree with it because I felt like he was the guy, he was our best player and my favorite player on the team. And I felt like he was someone that we should have kept through this rebuilding process, but ultimately we ended up letting him go. And uh, I certainly wish DeJounte the best in Atlanta and we'll see how he can, How and certainly it makes things exciting for Atlanta, you know, having him paired with Trey Young and they didn't have to give up John Collins in this deal either, which was disappointing for me because I felt like if we were going to trade Murray, we could get somebody influential back, but all we got was those first round picks, which could be good. I mean, we could certainly draft some good players with those first round picks, but I, th- I do think there's more, you know, concern. I mean, sometimes it's hard to hit in the draft. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. Only time will tell if this ends up being a good move for the Spurs, but for the Hawks, it's exciting for them to get Murray paired up with Trey Young and their guys they have there. And for a team that, you know, made the playoffs last year, barely, and the year before that, made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, they have talent there in that building. They have a lot of potential. And now adding Murray, it's really exciting for the Hawks. And so I hate to see him go, but I wish him the best. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about it much more because obviously you touched on it for a while there and for good reason. You know, it's tough, especially when you're in a rebuilding state. And I guess the team, you know, the Spurs, obviously your team in this case, just felt like there was still a rebuilding phase that had to take to another level almost, which is kind of weird because, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to rebuild right now with the Rockets. And anytime a team rebuilds, someone you have to start to grow and thought maybe Murray was that centerpiece, like you said, but apparently they don't see it the same way. And then it is exciting for the Hawks. You know, that backcourt's going to be really fun to watch. Think about the big guys they have there already, Clint Capella and John Collins still there, uh, I believe, at the, at the moment. And so that's exciting for them if they kind of see that being like kind of the future core there still to some extent. So obviously they're 
they're trying to win now and uh, trying to rise to the top of the Eastern Conference again. So great stuff for the Hawks and for the Spurs, all those draft picks. You know, certainly they're trying. They look like a team that's going to be like in the high in the lottery next year. And in that case, or you know, a lot of people were saying that they're trying to target. You know, you know, likely the number one overall pick next year, almost by all estimations, Victor Wembanyama, the uh, player out there in Paris uh, over there in France. So uh, he's an international prospect that's you know highly rated by many NBA you know draft experts. A guy who's probably going to be the number one overall pick undoubtedly next year so of course but you know being in the lottery doesn't guarantee you the first overall pick so it's a sweepstakes whenever it comes down to it next year but that certainly looks like the path the Spurs are trying to take and so moving on to the next trade here we see the Nuggets uh, and the Wizards make a swap a couple of players going each way Uh, the Nuggets uh, acquired Contavious Caldwell Pope and Ish Smith and the Wizards acquire Monte Morris and Will Barton so not a big trade Uh, certainly these teams see these are more role players obviously Will Barton's been a good scorer uh, for the Nuggets over the years so we'll see how he fits in with with the Wizards and KCP's an older player and then Morris and Smith a couple of guys who haven't done a lot in their career necessarily again role players guys who can score the basketball but that's pretty much it. So uh, we'll see. I know it's something we wanted to mention, but we wanted to make it quick for a reason. So that's why I kind of just ran through that real fast. Just a 2v2 swap, and we'll see how they fit in with their new teams. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was something I mentioned briefly because, you know, Will Barton was a pretty solid player with the Nuggets, and, you know, Monte Morris was pretty good for them last year off the bench. And, you know, even the guys that the Nuggets got in return are pretty solid players, though. So I think it was kind of interesting trade for guys who were, you know, kind of uh, not the best guys on their teams, but they were good players for them. And we'll see what kind of role they have in their new teams with Morris and Barton going to Washington. And then, of course, Caldwell Pope and Smith now being in Denver. Uh, next up here, this was a pretty big one that, you know, it says that it was official today, you know, on July 6th, uh, but this was one that happened before the drafts, and it was between the Pistons and the Trailblazers when the Trailblazers traded for Jeremy Grant, and at the time, the number 46 pick, which ended up being Ishmael Kamagate, and then the Pistons traded for the number 36 pick, which ended up being Gabrielle Procida, and then also a 2025 first round pick via Milwaukee, a 2025 second round pick, and a 2026 second round pick, and so I think it was a good trade for both sides, really, because the Trailblazers are trying to get, and they end up getting a guy in Jeremy Grant who's a talented player and has, was really, you know, pretty uh, dependable and pretty rel- and pretty good for the most part in his time with the Pistons over the past couple of years after he was after he signed there f- from the Nuggets. And I think he's a good player to add to that group and with Trailblazers and kind of try to give them another veteran guy who's talented and can play at a high level and be good with uh, Damian Lillard. Um, and then also good for the Pistons to get all those all those picks back in return. And then, you know, their team had a great draft and they're trying to kind of, they're in a rebuilding state right now too. And Grant was kind of almost like a transition guy for them. And I think for them to be able to flip him and get some picks in return while they also had a great draft and they're kind of, you know, kind of rebuilding together. I think it was just a great trade for both sides. Yeah, somewhat similar to Christian Wood, I think Jeremy Grant was kind of a guy who broke out with the Pistons. Funny because Wood used to play for the Pistons and came down to the Rockets and was great for a couple of years. Jeremy Grant, like you said, with the Nuggets was a decent player. And then I feel like he kind of broke out and kind of turned into a, uh, he took a next step in his career with the Pistons and was a really great player for them. Now the Trailblazers bring him in. We know uh, they missed the playoffs for the first time in like eight or nine years last year. They had like the longest active playoff streak until they missed it last year. They're really bad down the stretch. They had nobody. Damian Lillard missed a lot of time. Of course, traded CJ McCollum's. They're going through like a mini rebuild and trying to get back to being relevant again. And you pair up Grant with Lillard in terms of not... You know, obviously, they play different positions. They won't be in the backcourt together, but you know the idea of having them in the starting lineup together, and we'll see kind of how they grow and move forward. Uh, of course, I, I believe they re-signed Yusuf Nurkic. So that's good for them. And so they have, you know, trying to kind of build a little bit of a new core, still centered around Damian Lillard. But I think he's still trying to see what they're going to do because I don't know if he's completely convinced. But that's you know a decent trade. And like you said, the Pistons great draft. They got more picks, and they're certainly looking like they are on the right track at the moment. 
biggest trade we've seen so far this offseason was the Utah Jazz sending Rudy Gobert to the Minnesota Timberwolves. That's all the Timberwolves got in return was Rudy Gobert, and they gave up a boatload of players and picks, and just a ridiculous trade this ended up being as the Jazz acquired Malik Beasley, Patrick Beverly, Leandro Balmero, uh, Walker Kessler, who was number 22 pick in this year's draft, and Jared Vanderbilt. Uh, those were just the players that were involved in this trade. They also got a 2023 first-round pick, a 2025 first-round pick, a 2026 pick swap, a 2027 first-round pick, and a 2029 first-round pick protected. Just unbelievable uh, what the Jazz got in return, at least in my opinion. I just think this is a crazy amount because Rudy Gobert is obviously one of the you know better players in the NBA, certainly a, 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 definitely a viable big. He's been around for a while, had a lot of success with the Jazz. But I just look at him more of a double-double guy. Of course, he's a great defender, one of the best defenders in the, you know, in the NBA, obviously. He's won Defensive Player of the Year before. I believe he's been an all-star. He's been a great player for the Jazz forever. But for a guy who's just a great defender inside, great rim protector, and a guy who just gets double-doubles, I mean, he's not a stretch five, obviously. He's not a versatile big man. He can't shoot the basketball. He just I feel like he's kind of isolated and limited excuse me, I feel like he's kind of isolated and limited in what he can do and what he can bring to the Timberwolves. They already have a great big in Carl Anthony Towns. Of course, he's they're different styles. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they play together. But you know, what a great you know haul for the Jazz. All those picks are uh, great as we kind of try to figure out what they're doing now. Is they, you know, Quinn Snyder's not there anymore as their head coach. They're going through a little bit of a transition here. He kind of felt like they had a snag with the, the team that they had there with Donovan Mitchell and, and Rudy Gobert. It felt like they were going to move on from one of those guys. I think they made the right choice by moving on from Rudy Gobert because you know, Donovan Mitchell's a special talent and uh, they got a lot of players we'll see how they fit in you know, Walker Kessler's a kind of a similar player to some extent and all those role players and Blake Beasley's had some you know moments in his career Patrick Beverly's been all over the place all of a sudden he's played for a number of teams and can bring some energy and uh, Jared Vanderbilt I believe is still young and again all the picks so it'll be interesting to see certainly it's a huge trade just by the magnitude of what the Jazz got in return and as they go through a little bit of a transition period and kind of a not a rebuild I don't think necessarily but they're definitely uh, you know making some headlines. Yeah, the Jazz certainly are a team that's kind of, uh, you know, they're in that like kind of like a mini rebuild type of thing. Like you said, they kind of just needed a, they need fresh faces in the building, kind of just new, you know, kind of just a new feel in the locker room because it's kind of like gotten stale over the past handful of years. And they haven't been able to do as much as you, as you would think they could be able to do. And I think it was good for them to kind of break up uh, the, the the current state of the team a little bit and getting rid of Rudy Gobert was a good option for them, like you said, because I think if they're going to try to build around anybody, it needs to be Donovan Mitchell. And if they can build around him, that's the better way to go. And this is, just was a shocking trade, really, for the most part, because of how much the the Timberwolves gave up to get Gobert. Whenever he is a really good player, he certainly is one of the best centers in the league and one of the best defenders in the league and one of the best shot blockers, and he provides a lot in that capacity. But like you mentioned, he doesn't have a lot to offer offensively because he can, he's very limited to what he can do in that regard, and he basically just lives around the rim when it comes to scoring. And, of course, he can rack up you know a ton of rebounds, and he's one of the best rebounders in the league. And so surely he provides a lot of great uh, you know, he obviously can be really impactful for the Timberwolves, but gosh, they gave up so much that it was just hard to believe that they actually gave up that many players and picks just for one guy in Rudy Gobert. And you just don't know how much of an impact he's actually going to make on this team in terms of trying to get them to that next level because they made the playoffs last year for the first time in a while, but they didn't make it past the first round. And, you know, I just don't know how much of an impact Gobert is going to have to get them to the next, that next level. And for the Jazz, it's just really great for them as they are trying to kind of reset a little bit. I mean, that's what you want to do. Get a lot of these players in here, some of them younger guys. Uh, you know, I think most of the guys, younger guys, except for Beasley and Beverly, were kind of veterans, but the other guys are all young. And you get a bunch of first-round picks and stuff out of it, too. It's just a really great trade for the Jazz. And the Timberwolves will certainly benefit from it, but you wonder how much they're going to benefit from it. And it probably will hurt them more in the long run than anything. 
And then lastly here, this one's pretty quick. We have the Kings. They acquired Kevin Herter from the Hawks, and they traded Justin Holiday, Maurice Harkless, and a future first-round pick to get Herter. And, you know, it's uh, not a lot to say about this one necessarily. Herter was a good player for the Hawks at times. I think he had roles in the starting lineup and came off the bench at times, too, and was pretty good for them. Um, and the Kings obviously see him as a guy maybe they can bring in and can be impactful for them. Of course, the Kings are not a very good team usually, and, you know, they've been pretty bad for a while now, and so I don't know how much of an impact he's going to be able to have on this team, but... They give a guy, Justin Holiday, who they acquired last year at the trade deadline. I think he played decent for them at times. Now the Hawks get him in the building along with Maurice Harkless. And then a future first-round pick. So, I mean, on the surface here, I think the Hawks did pretty well with this trade. But we'll see. It could work out pretty good for both sides. Yeah, certainly that first-round pick could hold some value because you mentioned the Kings obviously aren't very competitive usually year in and year out. Of course, they're trying to win, but it hasn't really clicked ever for that organization in quite some time. And uh, But, yeah, it makes sense too because, I mean, they just traded for DeJounte Murray, the Hawks did, so you don't really need Kevin Herter in the building that much anymore unless you see him coming off the bench, which he could. But I'm assuming that the Kings are trading for him to give him a starting role alongside De'Aaron Fox. And, you know, they have some talent there with DeMontis Sabonis, uh, you know, at the five there and what he can do in the front court. So, again, they, they just drafted Keegan Murray at fourth overall. So they're trying to, you know, he, I think he'll probably be a starter for them just by my estimation, just thinking about it in my head here. But I don't know exactly what they're planning here. But if you give a future first round pick and a couple of players, I would think he's going to get some pretty significant playing time in the backcourt there for the Kings. So I thought it was worth mentioning to round out all the trades we've kind of seen, uh, you know, this offseason so far and so we'll go ahead and transition into some free agent moves that have been made again we mentioned it last week the free agency probably wasn't going to be that big of a deal and it hasn't been that notable yet the trades have overshadowed free agency and for good reason we've just talked about a number of those big moves those have been more landscape altering transactions so far in the offseason we've seen a number of players re-sign to the teams they're already playing for these huge max contracts we're not gonna get into all that because they're getting paid a bunch of money and um, you know for good reason in terms of how those teams you know see those players like John Moran and Bradley Bill and all these other guys who have gotten some really large contracts and so they're staying right where they are there's not really anything to talk about you know we expect if they're coming back that things won't change very much we want to talk about moves that are going to change things moving forward and so we'll start um, with uh, Andre Drummond who was signed by the Chicago Bulls pretty small move in terms of like the impact. It's a two-year deal. I just feel like when I watched the Bulls last year, obviously they weren't very good defensively at times. I think it'll help in that regard. They're also kind of small because, you know, um, you know what, what's his uh, what's, I guess, Nikola Vucevic. Nikola Vucevic, yeah. I couldn't remember his name at the moment. You know, he's not the biggest, you know, uh, center in the world. And so uh, I think Drummond will help in that regard. Rebounding the basketball. I feel like at times they struggled to rebound the basketball because they weren't that big either. So, I mean, they obviously signed him to a two-year deal. He's been a guy who's been around the league and been productive everywhere he's gone. Um, and so I think he'll be a good rebounder and, and should build a, you know, be a good presence inside the paint, protecting the rim and, you know, getting blocks and double doubles and stuff like that. So we'll see how much, how many minutes he gets. That's the real question. But I feel like he's a guy that doesn't need a ton of minutes to be productive. So we'll see whatever role they see for him. I think he'll help the team. Could be a solid asset off the bench for the Bulls to get rebounds and help out defensively. And if, you know, Vucevic was to get hurt for any amount of time, he could be a decent guy that they could plug in there. And I'm not, he wouldn't provide as much offensively as Vucevic does, but he could be, you know, a decent replacement for a little while if Vucevic was to go out. And so I, I do think it was a, a good acquisition for the Bulls here because they have some good talent in the building for sure. And I think helping out, you know, on the bench with adding Drummond and what he can do for them defensively, like you mentioned, also rebounding could be good for them. And so I think it was a, 
a good little deal there to mention briefly. And similarly, the Dallas Mavericks, they signed JaVale McGee to a three-year deal. And I think he also kind of fills a similar role that Drummond will with the Bulls. And then he'll provide a good, you know, big guy off the bench for the Mavericks, who I talked about earlier, their biggest problem down the stretch last year uh, came when, you know, was there a lack of size, you know, up front and in the interior. And they didn't have a big guy who could really rebound with the best of them. And that, you know, hurt them ultimately. And that's why they went out there and traded for Christian Wood to be, to help out in that regard. But then to have JaVale McGee come in the building and they signed him to the three-year deal, which I think he can provide a, a good option off the bench when Christian Wood needs to get a breather, obviously. And, also, and he's also a guy who's had some injuries in, with his time with the Rockets. And so if he was to get hurt, then McGee, then McGee would be a decent guy who could step in and start games for them and be and be solid. And of course, McGee was at the, the Suns recently and he played really well for Phoenix and off the bench. And so he's used to this role already. And he always got some championship pedigrees, played for some really good teams in his career. And I think he provides a good option off the bench uh, for the Mavericks to be good defensively, to be a good rebounder and help out uh, with Christian Wood whenever he needs to, you know, take a breath. And then also if he ever missed any time. And so I think it was a very similar move to what the Bulls did with Drummond. I think it'll be a good one for the Mavs. Yeah, I agree. Uh, certainly you make a lot of great points. And I feel like Christian Wood, he actually isn't, I don't feel like as great of a rebounder as you would think he would be with that size. So I think McGee would probably better, you know, on the on the glass. And certainly Christian Wood's a better scorer, you know, and being a versatile big guy who can shoot the three and do some good things. Uh, Jamal McGee, more of a, you know, defensive presence as well, a little bit. Like you said, like you said, very similar to the Drummond transaction. So, uh, you know, coming off the bench and just kind of contributing that role to a three year deal and certainly a guy who can contribute and help with the Mavericks and kind of fill a void for them. So I felt like that was a pretty notable move. I also wanted to mention for a moment Bruce Brown signing with the Nuggets on a two-year deal. I feel like Bruce Brown was a, I feel like in my time watching the NBA, I feel like he's been a good player. He's just been a good role player to have in the building. I feel like he can do a number of different things. He's pretty versatile in terms of, you know, kind of the different roles that he can fill on a roster coming off the bench or potentially having to start in different situations. You know, Kevin Durant was out quite a bit last year with the Nets and I feel like Brown stepped in and produced uh, for Brooklyn, did some good things. And we talked about the Nuggets and made that trade. You know, we talked about earlier it's that between the role players and the Wizards and everything like that. Uh, they have some guys, if they if they get healthy with Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., I feel like Bruce Brown would fit in nicely and really help the Nuggets, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one, too, for the Nuggets. You know, Brown is a guy who, you know, when his time with the Nets, he did have an opportunity to start in a handful of games at times with injuries to their some of their star players. And if whether and then he also, in, in, the, in those games where he was able to start, he was able to be productive for the most part. And then he came off the bench a lot as well and was good, too. And so I think, you know, what he was able to do with his time on the floor was definitely notable for Brooklyn. And now the Nets get him on a two-year deal. And I think, I mean, the Nuggets get him on a two-year deal here. And so, you know, if, if they can, if there's any room for him in the starting lineup, if there's injuries or if if he just ends up making making that start, ends up being a starter for them, uh, or if he comes off the bench, he could definitely provide a, a good impact for the Nuggets, who we do expect to be even better next year. Like we like we've talked about, they should get some guys back who were hurt last year, and they were a solid team last year without those guys. And now, that if they can get those guys back, like Murray and Porter Jr., and then you have other guys they added in free agency like Brown, then they could be a good complete team. And I think Brown will provide a, a good player for them, whether he starts or comes off the bench. Next up here, we have uh, John Wall signed a two-year deal with the Los Angeles Clippers, which is notable because John Wall he didn't really play at all last year, I don't think, with your Houston Rockets because you guys aren't really, you know, you guys are more focused on the younger guys, and so he was just kind of not playing. And I, I, You could probably explain the situation better, but uh, the point is, coming into the offseason, there, there was a mutual interest between John Wall and the Rockets to, you know, move on from him, and they ultimately bought out his contract, and so they had to swallow a lot of money there with Wall who they acquired back in the uh, Russell Westbrook trade a while back. And so 
Uh, ultimately, they came to an agreement to get rid of him, and they bought out his contract, and he was able to be a free agent. He signed with the Clippers on a two-year deal, and you know we haven't seen John Wall play in a little while, and so I feel like it was just at least an intriguing you know free agent to mention here going to the Clippers, and you know we'll see kind of what role he has, whether he's able to be a starter or come off the bench for them. Uh, but ultimately, it's a it's a notable move uh, because we might see John Wall playing again next season, and if he does play, he'll be playing with the Clippers. Yeah, I mean, he should be playing. He's been healthy. Yeah, it was just a really frustrating situation with him. And I, I know we wanted the young guys to play. I don't think – I believe we were wanting him to take on more of a bench role, and I think he wanted to be a starter. And it's just I'm not in the building. I don't know everything that was happening. I just know that it wasn't really – we couldn't really get on the same track. He played for us, you know, initially when we first traded for him, and then everything kind of – you know, obviously the rebuilding stage and really been bad the couple of, past couple of years, and it's been more of a focus on rebuilding and so letting the young guys get plenty of playing time. And he's been healthy uh, for the most part, you know, during this stretch. He just hasn't been playing, and then – all that money just uh, getting paid to him for, to not play. It was, I think, frustrating for our salary cap. Certainly we had to buy him out or certainly had to pay him a lot of money, like you mentioned, to buy out his contract. But just to have him out of the building is is good for both sides. Uh, I know it's something we I think we wanted to try to work on. I'm happy that it finally got done for both sides and wish him all the best. It's just a frustrating situation, I think, for both sides that it just didn't really work out. Probably more so for us than him because, I mean, if I was getting paid $40-plus million to not play and just to kind of hang out around the NBA, that would be a pretty good deal. But certainly I'm sure he wants to play again going to the Clippers should give him an opportunity to do that we saw Reggie Jackson have quite a bit of success with the Clippers last year we know Kawhi Leonard should be back right uh, after he had played all last year Paul George missed quite a bit of time but he should be healthy so I mean the Clippers are certainly a team that still has championship expectations and they're you know they're certainly with his acquisition and uh, if he's healthy and contribute you know obviously he's not what he used to be but still a guy who can uh, provide something for them and like you mentioned it's notable because he's a big name guy and he's getting paid a lot of money still and we'll see what what he can do for them older now than he used to be but Certainly a presence that can benefit the Clippers. Moving on now, probably the biggest thing we've seen so far and uh, was that the Knicks uh, you know, made a splash signing with Jalen Brunson. They gave him a four-year deal worth just north of $100 million. So this is something they really wanted to do. You know, the, We thought the Mavericks would try to bring back Jalen Brunson. I think they wanted to, but it just never really happened. And the Knicks were really pursuing him big time. So... You know, Jalen Brunson's a guy who we talked about throughout the playoffs because he was having such a great postseason run and really had a great year. And he's really turned himself into a really good NBA player and got paid for it, um, especially this you know this season down the stretch was a big-time score for them. We saw Luka Doncic miss a couple of games in that first-round series, and Jalen Brunson was great for them. I mean, a guy who's obviously a, you know, a good you know, guard and in the backcourt can do some good things for the Knicks. They certainly see a future for him. Uh, he's a good scorer, can pass the basketball, obviously. If you're a guard, you need to be able to distribute. He's a guy that's going to help them in that regard. So, I mean, I think... It, it's somewhat I think some people might be you know skeptical with how it's all going to work out because he's not necessarily that good uh, but he's you know gotten better every single year and so now he's going to be playing for the Knicks and we'll see how good he's going to be next year moving forward they certainly hope he's going to be great for them they, they paid him quite a bit of money to be there yeah, they're hoping he could be a really impactful player for them. Obviously, they shot out a lot of money for Brunson. We're one of the teams who kind of early on in free agency, we heard that the Knicks were really targeting him. Like you said, they really made sure they want, they really made it apparent they wanted him. They cleared out some cap space for him and made things work to where they were able to bring him back or to where they were, were able to sign him on that four-year deal. And so ultimately, we'll see what happens. Like you mentioned, he really flourished last year and certainly had a career year and was able to be really good for the Mavericks in the postseason as everybody got to the Western Conference Finals. He's a big part of that especially in those games where Luka Doncic missed time early in the postseason last year and he was able to be really important and he was able to be really good for the Mavericks and so he's very important for them and kind of showed he can step up and be, be that main guy and if Luka
Luca's not there, or like when Luca wasn't there, he was able to show that he could that he could show, show, shoulder the load and be good for the Mavericks. I think the Knicks have noticed that, and I think you and I talked about how we thought he was going to get paid quite a bit of money because he's a free agent, and certainly certainly that's what happened here with the Knicks going out there and giving him a big contract over four years. But certainly we'll see what happens. The Knicks are kind of in a rebuilding state still, I guess, right now. I mean, it's hard to say where they're at necessarily. I don't think they have played as well as they would have wanted to in the past couple of years. I think last year there was more excitement coming into the season, and they weren't able to live up to that very much. Uh, but there is some young talent there, and there are some guys in the building already, and hopefully for them, Brunson can come in there and kind of take on a leadership role and help out the younger guys that are still there, and they can try to get something going in there in New York for the Knicks. But I think it's a good signing. Uh, you talked about people being skeptical, and ultimately only time will tell how it pays off, but I think he can be impactful for New York, and as long as he continues to play as well as he did down the stretch for the Mavericks, and like you said, he continues to get better every single year, and so hopefully for the Knicks, he can take another step and be a really great player for them and maybe even be kind of like a I don't know. I don't want to say he can be an all-star, but we'll see. I mean, if he's in a lot of minutes now, we'll kind of see what kind of numbers he can put up being a starter every single day every in every game and having a chance to go out there and show what he can do. So that's definitely probably the notable, the most notable thing that's happened so far and what has been kind of a quiet offseason so far for free agency. But then lastly here, P.J. Tucker signed a three-year deal with the 76ers. Of course, P.J. Tucker last year with the Heat. He's actually with a number of teams recently. Uh, he was with the Bucks before last year. He was with the Heat. And so he won a championship with with Milwaukee, uh, not this past year, obviously, but the year before that. Then he signed with the Heat and played with them last year. It was good for them at times. I think, I don't know, I can't remember if he was always starting, but I definitely think he started for them at times. Um, they also came off the bench maybe a little bit, but certainly was a good player for them. We know what he can do offensively, and that's not a lot, but he can shoot the three ball from the corner really well. He's a great defender. He's a great leader. He can do a little bit of everything. He's a good rebounder. And so I think he played really well for the Heat last year, and now he gets to sign, you know, he signs with the 76ers on a three-year deal, and they're a team that obviously, you know, weren't, didn't perform like they would have wanted to last year, and the season didn't end very well for them. But I think he's a guy who can come in there and be a good player for them and a good leader in the locker room and a good contributor. And so it's a nice signing for the 76ers. Yeah, the Philadelphia Rockets. No, I'm joking. It's it's uh, They also signed Daniel House. So I, it reminds me of, you know, P.J. Tucker and Daniel House and James Harden likely coming back on a uh, some kind of reworked deal with the 76ers. And I mentioned that because they have Daryl Morey, obviously, as their general manager. So it feels like, obviously, not, not close to what we once were or the players we have, but some similarities there. And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, I mean, P.J. Tucker has been around the league for a while, won a championship with the Bucs, and certainly, like you mentioned, all the things that he pretty much nailed on the head. Great defender, can rebound the basketball, and, and can spot up in the corner and, and shoot the three. But that's pretty much all he's going to do. And he might have some games where he just absolutely nothing, just doesn't contribute in the box score. But he probably does more uh, than just, the, you know, have to probably dig deeper. He'll, I mean, the box score numbers might not be there, but he's still going to be an impactful player for them. And uh, certainly a guy who they see uh, as an impactful player for them some in some role, in some capacity. And Again, they're trying to work on a reworked deal. For, or they're trying to get a reworked contract with James Harden, who opted out, I believe, so they could try to, you know, give him less money so they can sign more players. We'll see exactly how they do it moving forward. But 76ers are a team that, you know, they have everything they need there to try to uh, get to an NBA Finals and get to an Eastern Conference Finals, and, you know, and, and have that kind of posted success that they they were you know, trying to reach. Certainly, uh, that's going to help to some extent. So I think that's all we have to say, really. Again, a lot of guys resigned. We didn't want to talk about that too much. I uh, didn't really feel like there was much else we needed to mention. It hasn't been, like I mentioned, like like I said, you said as well, just not a huge free agency period so far in terms of all the notable players, but 
you know, there was certainly a few acquisitions here and there. And uh, last thing I'll say that I kind of wanted to say that, I, you know, this is the last chance I get to say it, but, you know, Jalen Brunson, you're pairing up with RJ Barrett, right? There's, you know, somewhat of a backcourt there. And again, you, 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 I feel like you made a good point with the Knicks. We're not really sure where they are, right? I feel like they've, they were there in the postseason not that long ago. They got a gentleman's sweep, you know, to the Hawks and uh, a couple of years ago, or a gentleman swept by the Hawks a couple of years ago. And then last year, I think they weren't, you know, nearly as good defensively and just did not play well enough uh, and didn't make the playoffs. And now, you know, we'll see exactly. Uh, what kind of steps they can take moving forward. But everyone, you know, the Knicks are obviously one of the most popular teams and they're trying to get back to contention. It just doesn't really feel like uh, they're going to be there yet. But, you know, we'll see how Jalen Brunson fits in and uh, as well as P.J. Tucker there with 76ers. So that's all we have to say about the NBA offseason activities so far. Anything that happens over the next couple of days up until next episode, we can you know, talk about that as well. But, you know, of course, Kevin Durant, you know, is requested for a trade now from the Nets, which is going to, you know, pull in. I mean, who knows? That's going to be an unbelievable trade. If that gets done, Kyrie Irving probably wants out now as well. It's almost, you know, guaranteed at this point that's going to be the case. So we'll talk about that more later if whenever that happens. But that's kind of the biggest storyline in the NBA right now is what's going to happen there. And I think there's some chance that that can kind of escalate now moving forward as more executives and folks head out to Las Vegas for summer league action, which is already underway in some places. I believe Salt Lake City has some games going on um, over there with the Thunder. We saw Chet Holmgren have a really good game the other day, uh, 23 points and a summer league record, six blocks. So he's off to a great start in summer league. We get the Rockets tomorrow night against the Magics. We get to see Jabari Smith against Paolo Bancaro, number three overall pick against number one overall pick for the first time there in the summer league. So I'm looking forward to watching that tomorrow night. And so I know I mentioned the summer league a little bit last week and just kind of mentioning again that, you know, it's, it's definitely arriving, you know, here over the next couple of days and moving forward. That's going to be fun to uh, tune into. So I don't know if you have anything else to say. We go ahead and just move on now to the uh, Major League Baseball segment where we start with our news and notes like we always do. And so go back to last Tuesday, June 28th. This is a very brief note, but I just want to mention that the Yankees at this time were 55 and 20 through 75 games. And I, I wrote this down and I thought I would remember what it, what the, you know, I think they're tied somewhere along the way. I believe they're tied for, you know, maybe sixth or top 10 for one of the best starts uh, in, MLB, in MLB history. I, I, I should have wrote it down probably because it was actually like a week ago and I forgot exactly. There was something else to that didn't write it down, whatever. At the end of the day, the Yankees off to a great start, um, obviously, and a historic start to some extent as well. Last Wednesday, June 29th, we saw Sandy Alcantara pitch a complete game, his second of the season, and uh, this was very notable because it was a game against the Cardinals where we were actually losing 3-2. to two. The Marlins were, I say we, because I'm obviously a Marlins fan, losing 3-2 to two going into the ninth inning, and then it was Ivy Sayal Garcia had a two-run home run off Ryan Helsley, who's been untouchable in the back end of the bullpen for the Cardinals with two outs to, uh, to dead center. Marlins took a 4-3 lead, and Sandy Alcantara goes back out there, uh, over 100 pitches, but he's a workhorse. He's an absolute ace. Um, he's old school, you know, and he can go deep in the games know that uh, and we'll talk about him a little more actually later for a moment in time but he goes back out there and we had the Cardinals had two on with one out and we had a little meeting at the mound and Don Mattingly was they were having a discussion you, you knew Sandy that wasn't going to come out of the game and the very next uh, at bat he gets a double play to end the game and just a really cool moment uh, I think we don't see that very much in MLB nowadays so it was a great win for the Marlins and it started a first of uh, what was six consecutive wins before we lost tonight but that was a really cool moment in time for uh, Sandy Alcantara is definitely going to be in the All-Star game. I think he should be the starter, and he's certainly uh, one of the leaders in the NL Cy Young race. Another note we have here, Josh Naylor went berserk after a walk-off two-run homer. I'll let you talk about this one first. 
Yeah, Josh Neal had that big uh, two-run walk-off home run for the Guardians in the bottom of the 10th inning, I believe it was, uh, last week against uh, the Twins. And this is a game where the Twins actually took the lead in the top of the 10th inning, 6-3. to three. And so, you know, the Guardians weren't in a great position to win the game, but they came back in the bottom of the 10th and scored four runs and won on the walk-off two-run home run by Josh Naylor, who went crazy, like you said, after, you know, crossing home plate and, you know, scoring that winning run as he, you know, started just, you know, getting all hyped up. His players were obviously... His uh, teammates obviously came off the bench and were you know celebrating with him and stuff like that but he was just getting all fired up and he actually headbutt Terry Francona their uh, manager who uh, you know put on a helmet beforehand I don't know if he knew that he was going to do that but I mean he put on a helmet beforehand then he headbutted him and uh, I mean he was just going crazy and we saw had that kind of same energy that we saw from him after he hit that huge grand slam uh, a while back against the uh, White Sox and a comeback win way back in like May I think it was but certainly an exciting player uh, in MLB who's having a great year and I think he's having the best year of his career uh, this season for the Guardians and he's had some big hits for Cleveland so far this year and that was a big one and he certainly you know was incredibly hyped afterwards. Yeah definitely I mean you mentioned the game against the White Sox where he had like eight RBI from like the eighth inning on which was I think a record we talked about on the podcast a number of weeks ago and then it was that, that three run home run that he had that gave him the lead that he was just going nuts in the dugout and yelling I want all the smoke and stuff so we know what kind of player Josh Naylor is in terms of the energy he brings that was a really funny moment in time uh, just last Wednesday when he was going absolutely nuts after hitting a two run home run like you said it was a big win for the Guardians and they've been on a slide lately but that was a big series and it was a big win uh, certainly for his team and we saw Zach Greinke make his 500th career start last Wednesday the great uh, right-hander potentially I think he's I think he make the case he's a future Hall of Famer I'm not going to go into that I kind of popped to my top of my head uh, I'm just thinking about his career started with the Royals went to the Dodgers the Diamondbacks my Astros now back with the Royals again he's had a great career um, we'll see about all that but definitely want to recognize you know 500 career start certainly a milestone worth mentioning Another really cool thing we saw last Wednesday, we had a bunch of notes last Wednesday, and uh, this was probably one of the more special ones. One of the more unique ones we've seen is Mark Appel made his long-awaited debut, the number one overall pick back in 2013 for my Astros uh, during that rebuilding period and never made it to the major leagues, um, had you know injury issues, and he actually, I think, he had a shoulder injury that actually kind of ended his career at one point. I think it was in 2017 when he kind of walked away from the game. Then he came back, I think, in 2020 or, or 2021 and uh, was able to get, you know, along with the Phillies organization, pitching really well in their minor league system. Him, really great year so far at AAA. They gave him the call up to the big leagues like uh, a couple weeks ago, and then he finally got a chance to go into a game last Wednesday and pitched a one, two, three, and he got his first career strikeout. And uh, certainly, really cool. It was the, like I think it was like the the latest and number one overall pick has ever made a debut, or I think he's like almost 30 years old at this point. You know, so it's uh, one of the you know more late arrivals we've ever seen for a number one overall pick, but certainly shows his resilience and his commitment to trying to make the big league dream come true. And really happy for him. Yeah, it's a true uh, story of perseverance and just never giving up. You know, certainly a guy who had such expectations when he was drafted by your Astros back in 2013, and then unfortunately it never worked out because of all those injuries that you mentioned. Then you step away, and then, you know, he stuck, he, uh, you know, like you said, he's, uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm in trouble with this. <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, he stepped away from the game. I don't know. I was trying to look for a different word to use, but then that's the only word I can use. But yeah, he left the game for a little while, and then, you know, I don't really know what he was doing during that time, but certainly it appears that, you know, playing 
baseball was still always on his mind and something that he wanted to do. And then thankfully for him, he was able to, you know, get back into the game and, you know, ultimately be healthy and then, you know, come up with the Phillies and have a chance to pitch finally at the big league level. And then to do uh, and then have a good scoreless ending there for the Phillies was great to see. And so ultimately just a, a great show of perseverance and resilience and just never giving up on your dream and your passion and what you want to do. And just, you know, no matter what happens, you know, he, you know, he overcame adversity, you know, it's just a good story and a good lesson for life. Just when you, you know, things are going to happen, they're going to kind of push you down and you're going to have adversity and they're going to have obstacles you have to overcome. And certainly he had a bunch of them, uh, even though he had such high expectations quickly, it was humbled and had to overcome those obstacles and that adversity, but he made it happen and he finally pitched in the major leagues. And that was great to see for Mark Appel. Yeah, definitely. Uh, more history here, or not, well, actually, we're not going to get to this history yet, but this is part of history. Uh, but Brian Reynolds had a three-homer game last Wednesday against the Washington Nationals. Uh, a really terrific game, obviously, for Brian Reynolds, who has been a lot of trade discussion, or a lot of discussion about him being a potential trade candidate. And you, certainly, if you're a Pirates fan, I don't think you'd want to see him go. He's a young player who's made the All-Star team last year. has been great for them and his career. Uh, had a three-homer game. That's part of what we'll get to in a moment that made history for the Buccos. Uh, we saw show. Uh, excuse me, we saw Shohei Otani make more history last week. I suppose like every single week we have something to say about Shohei Otani and what he's been doing. Had an unbelievable month of June. He actually became the first player with three pitching wins and six home runs in one month. Did that all in the month of June. He's been absolutely spectacular, especially on the mound for the Angels. They've had you know, a lot of struggles. They haven't been winning even with all of his dominance, but he has been locked in on both sides of the, uh, in terms of both sides of what he does. You know, which, I was going to say both sides of the play, but that's not, it doesn't make sense. He's not a switch hitter, but it's like he's a pitcher and a hitter. We obviously know that. We've talked about him every week. It feels like and for good reason because he deserves the attention. Yeah, it certainly seems like every single time he goes out there, he's making history, and that's not actually, you know, far off because he actually made more history tonight, which we'll be able to talk about next week because, as you guys know, we're not going to talk about any notes from today. We'll wait until after the day is over, and then we can document them and talk about them next week, but he actually made some more history tonight that we'll talk about next week on the podcast. Uh, But, yeah, like you said, seemingly every time he goes out there, he's doing something special, and, you know, having those three wins and those six home runs in the same month is spectacular, and like you said, nothing we've ever seen before, and so it just seems like we have to continue to appreciate what he's doing out there and I think this year I don't want to say something a better year than he did last year but I mean he's pitching better than he did last year I think he's certainly been one of the best pitchers in MLB especially over the last month or so he's been lights out in his last four to six starts he's really been terrific but he's really just been you know I think just again I've talked about this before I think after last year what he did it was so incredible and hard to fathom that I think this year it's kind of like he couldn't he couldn't live up to that again but he's actually doing really well again and it's been fun to watch it's been enjoyable as you all know i have my fantasy team and so i always get to enjoy everything he does and i'm definitely very observant of the great things he's doing night in and night out both as a batter and as a pitcher and you know what he did in the month of june with those three wins and those six home runs was fantastic and then tonight he had another terrific start which resulted in history that we'll talk about next week but ultimately i just feel like we still aren't you know appreciating him enough but i think here on the podcast we certainly are always able to give him his due because what he's doing right now is really amazing and fun to watch. Yeah, definitely. Almost like people were just are at a loss for words to some extent because we really don't know how to summarize all this. I think I mentioned it before. I think once his career is over, we'll uh, definitely look back and uh, be able to probably be even more special. But I, I try to make sure that we're living in the present and seeing this right now. It's really amazing. Uh, last thing from last Wednesday, Jason Castro is 100th career home run uh, for my Astros. Actually, was the only uh, run scored in that game, a two-run shot that gave the Astros a 2-0 win. Uh, Jason Castro has been a good catcher. Uh, he's played for a number of different teams in his career. He played with the Twins and the Angels and now with my Astros. thought it was a notable milestone. You know, not a whole lot of people probably can... I mean, to last, he's you know, been in the league for a while and not a home run hitter, but certainly uh, and being a catcher, that's an offensively challenged position because of the labor that they do behind the plate. But uh, that was, you know, getting 100, that's pretty cool getting a triple digits. 
Last Thursday, June 30th, which is our birthday, we had a couple of notes. Uh, we saw Michael Perez have a three-homer game that put the Pirates into the history books. So this is the history that I was talking about earlier. The Pirates became the second team in MLB history to have players with back-to-back three-home run games. Uh, last year we saw, or back in September of 2020, we saw Marcelo Zuna and Adam Duvall do that for the Braves. Uh, this year, of course, Brian Reynolds, who I just mentioned, and now Michael Perez uh, on Thursday. And it was obvi- also uh, quite remarkable because Michael Perez had the lowest batting average entering a three-home run game with a minimum of 75 plate appearances in MLB history. He was batting at 128 coming into the game, and yet he was locked in, hit three home runs, and just quite remarkable stuff. And the Pirates also became the first team in MLB history to have three different players have three homer games in one month. We saw Jackson Winsky do that earlier in June as well. So uh, pretty remarkable, obviously. I don't think it's something, it's something we might never see again. Um, just really cool stuff. Yeah, there were certainly layers to that stat that you just mentioned about Michael Perez with a low batting average. You know, certainly a guy that you would hardly ever expect to have a three-home run game. I know that whenever you first brought up to me, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, how did he do that? Like, that's one of the most improbable three-home run games I think I've probably ever seen. And then so you have that aspect of it, and then you have him and Brian Rolls doing it on back-to-back days for only the second time ever that's happened for two teammates. And then you have three of them in, in, the, in a single month, which is incredible to see. And, and honestly, all of them came in like the second half of the month if you think about it because Sawinski did it on Father's Day and so they all happened like the last 11 days you know from June 19th to June 29th and then June 30th and so really I don't know I mean you could almost if, if you want to take a step further you could say like three, 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 three home run games in like an 11 day span like that's pretty incredible but then they just put it in the whole month because it never happened in the month but just a really crazy stat for the Pirates who you know and, and what the weird thing about that too is that they're not a very big not a very good offensive team but they don't hit home runs that often I think they have like the second fewest home runs hit in the league or they're very, at least they're down there with like the bottom five teams in terms of home runs and so of all the teams in the league that you would think would have three three homer games games uh three players with three home run games in a single month you certainly wouldn't be like i think it was the pirates who did like if someone asked you like hey a team you know which team do you think it was like if someone like said hey there was a team that had three players with you know <laughs> who each had a three home run game this month who, you, who do you think it would be someone would probably say like the yankees you might say like the red Sox or maybe the astros right i mean that, that makes sense right but then it's like the pirates how did they how did they have three players who did that but that's baseball for you and that's really cool for pittsburgh yeah, definitely. It's uh, unexpected, and then the Buckos into the history books. Uh, you, you definitely added on nicely to that note. Uh, I don't think it's something. And Michael Perez is a catcher too. Uh, and you know, as you mentioned, with as I mentioned with the batting average, we just talked about Jason Castro and the catcher, obviously a challenging position offensively. That was really remarkable too. So I was Jack Swinsey's a rookie, so he did it as well. Just all the different things. That's uh, one of the most improbable things I think we'll see all season long. We also saw Christopher Morrell have a five-hit game on Thursday. And uh, I wanted to mention this because I don't think we've had a lot of five-hit games this year. Uh, he's also a guy who was kind of we talked about him on the podcast before, and he kind of you know hit a little bit of a you know snag there, kind of was struggling a little bit. They moved him down to the bottom of the order the Cubs did, but then he came through in a five-hit game the other day against the Reds and just really put on a show. So I don't feel like we've had a lot of those this year. I don't have a number of it. We might that might have been the first one all year. Who knows? I just felt like we should recognize that. Well, as we go to Friday, July first, uh, we saw Nolan Arnauto hit for the cycle uh, for the Cardinals against the Phillies. It was the fifth cycle of the year. We've had a number of these already um, just really surprising I think we've talked about the podcast before we've had so many already folks like and they just keep on coming uh, and this was uh, you know 
uh, excuse me, like I said, last Friday, and uh, it was the second cycle of Nolan, Ar- uh, excuse me, of Nolan Arenado's career. Did it back with the Rockies on Father's Day back in 2017, and that was really cool. Too. That was probably the, better than this one just because he hit a home run to do it when he was with the Rockies. This one, he, you know, he had uh, an infield single there at the end that was that completed the cycle that was somewhat questionable, I think, in terms of like it could have been an error. I think they got it right. I think it was a really, really hard hit ball in a third, and it was, uh, a, you know, a tough play to make. So I think they got it right. I think he had a triple in his first at bat and he had a homer in a second and then the double and then the infield single that ended up completing the cycle for him but he became only the fourth player active player at least with multiple cycles along with Trey Turner Christian Yellow you did earlier this year and then Freddie Freeman as well so uh, pretty cool stuff for Nolan Arenado yeah definitely good stuff for Arenado who like I said has two now in his career and that the other one that happened on Father's Day in 2017 was actually a walk-off home run too so not just a home run but it was a walk-off home run and I actually think that was something that was before you and I really got into baseball you know that's 2017 but I think that was like in you know it was in Father's Day it was on Father's Day so it was the middle of June I think that was around the time you and I kind of started watching MLB more I think I remember that faintly because I remember he cut, had a cut above his eye because someone threw their helmet in the little dog pile or whatever and so I remember that was kind of like one of those moments from like my early you know MLB kind of started to become a fan of the game a little bit more and so you know he was terrific uh, on you know on Friday to hit for the cycle and he actually you know hit the, he hit the triple first and then the home run and then the double and the last one was actually the single the easiest one and like you said it was an infield single that I, I do think was probably scored properly of course for me I was playing against him in fantasy and so I was kind of hoping it would be an error but they called it a hit and then he got the second on the error it's actually the first time I've actually had someone throw a have a cycle against me I mean you guys have heard me talking about the podcast before I'm the guy who always has no hitters thrown against him but I had never had a cycle against me until then which is unfortunate, but I probably would have lost anyways. Uh, ultimately, it was a good performance by Arnado. It was great to see for him. And the fifth cycle already this year, I think it's pretty surprising. I'm actually curious. The more we've had five now, and we've had a ton of them as of late, it feels like. I'm actually curious. And I may look this up off air. Like, how many cycles, you know, what's the record for the most cycles in one season? Because we've already got five right now. We're about halfway through the season right now. So we still have plenty of games to go. And, you know, if we continue on this pace, we could have like 10 cycles this year. And that would be a lot. And so I'm have to look that up to see what the record is because five right now is quite a bit for this point in the season. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one more note from last Friday, we saw Christian Javier continue to dominate. Of course, he was part of the no-hitter, the combined no-hitter for my Astros against the Yankees a couple of weeks ago. And uh, uh, in this game, he only allowed one hit, which was a solo home run to Shoya Otani. Other than that, he pitched seven innings and uh, had thir- excuse me, had uh, yeah, 13 strike- or he had 14 strikeouts in this game, I beg your pardon. He had 14 strikeouts in this game as well. So he had 27 strikeouts in a two-game span, only allowing one hit. That was the first time a pitcher had ever done that in the modern era, so at least since 1900 have 27 strikeouts and two games with only one hit allowed so just uh, a ridiculous run there for a couple of starts for Christian Javier who is part of the great rotation that my Astros uh, possess and uh, you know he's got you know we talked about him last week with the no hitter and everything uh, having a breakout season this year getting a chance to be a starter and uh, that was really cool to see as well. That was quite phenomenal there for that two-game span against the Yankees and Angels, you know, to have that many strikeouts, only one hit allowed is really remarkable. And so, you know, we talked about him last week a little bit, so I'm not going to talk about it for too long. But, yeah, he's certainly a guy who's having a breakout year and having more of an opportunity to do things. And he knows what his role is now in the starting rotation. He's living up to it. Of course, tonight he actually struggled against the Royals, which is kind of strange, but that's baseball for you, you know, because the Royals are a team that, you know, on paper you see a home start against the Royals, and you feel like Javier would have a chance to do pretty good, but he actually got beat up pretty good in the first inning. It didn't do as well tonight, but same time regression was due for him after those two amazing starts back to back and uh ultimately something a great year for your Astros whose rotation is certainly just stellar right now 
Yeah, definitely one of the best in baseball. He's a big part of that. Moving on out to players of the month uh, in the month of June. Uh, so we've had, you know, obviously the month has expired. And now we're, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times. We had the players of the month in April and May. And now we're going to go and talk about the June ones. We'll probably try to make this quick. We obviously have players of the week every week. It's somewhat similar to that. So we have a little bit larger, uh, some of players to talk about. But we'll start with the uh, pitchers of the month uh, in the month of June. We'll start with uh, the National League player of the, uh, excuse me, National League pitcher of the month was Sandy Alcantara from my Orleans, who we've talked about him a number of times on the podcast, quite a bit in June because he's been so dominant. Was three and one with a 1.89 ERA, uh, 0.88 WHIP, and 34 strikeouts and 47 and two thirds innings in the month of June. Obviously, Sandy Alcantara having a terrific season, uh, leads MLB in innings pitched, and uh, one of the best in baseball. Certainly gets recognized there. And the National League would be the pitcher of the month. And then the American League pitcher of the month, uh, excuse me, of the month was Dylan Cease of the Chicago White Sox, who put together an absolutely phenomenal month uh, for the Pale Hose. He had a uh, 0.33 ERA over 27 and a third innings pitch with 45, stri- uh, 45 strikeouts. And he also had an opponent's batting average of 192. So really great stuff from Dylan Cease, who uh, I think he, we've, we talked about before. And you have him on your fantasy team, so you've talked about more than I have. But uh, he's definitely the best pitcher in that starting rotation. Yeah, he's been phenomenal this season for the White Sox, and I've certainly enjoyed it a lot. And in June, he was fantastic. He allowed 11 runs in the month, but only, t- only one of those was earned, and that was a home run he gave up against the Orioles a few starts ago, and in a start where he had a career-high 13 strikeouts. And so he was fantastic in June. He's really been great all season long for the White Sox, and I definitely think has been their best pitcher in their staff, and I think sometimes doesn't get the kind of publicity that he deserves, uh, which is surprising considering the White Sox are a team that I think gets talked about quite a bit and certainly isn't a team that, that doesn't have – get media attention but I feel like he hasn't gotten talked about enough he's certainly on his way to the all-star game because he's been terrific this year if he could just have a a, you know finish strong here leading up to the all-star game I think he'll certainly be a part of it he was fantastic in June along with Sandy Alcantara for your Marlins like you mentioned who's been just ridiculous this season and was had another phenomenal month of June and certainly is the front runner for the NL sign award right now and it was great to see him continue to pitch well in June as for the rookies of the month, we'll go there next. We had Seattle Mariners outfielder Julio Rodriguez was the AL rookie of the month. He was phenomenal in June after he won the award in May as well. Uh, he's certainly on the track right now to be the AL rookie of the year. He's just been fantastic this year for the Mariners. Uh, he's the first Mariners rookie to earn the distinction in consecutive months since Ichiro Suzuki in 2001. And of course, Ichiro was the rookie of the month or the rookie of the year that year as well uh, for the Mariners. And, you know, Julio Rodriguez, he made history a couple of days ago. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, uh, but he's just been fantastic all year and certainly continued that great run in June. And then for the NL rookie of the month, it was Michael Harris, the second with the Atlanta Braves, who was called up, you know, I think it was uh, sometime in May for the Braves and really took off in June. He was fantastic. He had three, 47 in the month of June, 13 extra base hits. And, you know, it was just fantastic for the Braves who, you know, they had a terrific month of June and he was a big part of that, you know, because, you know, he's been playing so well for them since he got called up and really filled a nice hole there in center field and has been just phenomenal for the, for Atlanta. Yeah, definitely. Uh, he's been, you know, I picked him on my fantasy team, you know, somewhat. I just kept, we kept watching quick pitch every night. I felt like he kept doing something good every single night. And eventually the stats showed that with a good sample size. And I felt like I could trust him and I picked him up. And he's been a mainstay in my lineup. And a guy who certainly uh, has shown really good plate discipline or he hasn't walked a lot. But I mean, he's been very, uh, you know, good at, you know, you know, making contact against really good pitches. Like I know uh, <laughs> I kind of stumbled there, but I was saying like, I think I saw against Jose Alvarado not that long ago, really, you know, fireball left-hander. And he was able to get his hands inside and double single to left 
left center, and you just see him particular good at bats all the time. Uh, he's been really good for the Braves. He's been their nine hole hitter. He's been awesome for them. So he's been a really good job of lengthening that lineup and then giving the top of the order, you know, guys on base and in front to drive in. And then Julio Rodriguez, as you mentioned, has just been awesome uh, for the Mariners. The J-Rod show, he's been their best offensive player, I think, especially with Ty. Oh, you can make the case alongside Ty France, but because France has been injured for a little while now, he's definitely having to kind of carry the, carry the load offensively, and the Mariners certainly have more success now, and he's been a big part of that. And again, as you mentioned, we'll talk about him uh, for a moment later. Uh, we'll go and move on now to the uh, Players of the Month, uh, and then we'll go with the National League Player of the Month first, and that was uh, Kyle Schwarber, uh, who um, you know has really done a great job of carrying the load since Bryce Harper was out with that broken thumb. Kyle Schwarber last year, I believe, won Player of the Month in the month of June. He did it again this year. Uh, he had 12 home runs in the month of June with 27 RBI. Uh, he's been absolutely awesome. I think he's kind of underrated, honestly. I feel like uh, you know he's a guy that I voted for in the first phase one of voting, which I we, I think we're going to talk about that for a moment later. But I think he doesn't get enough credit for how uh, offensively productive he's been for that Phillies team this year and uh, just hitting homers. He had another multi-homer game tonight. He's been awesome. And then the American League Player of the Month was Jordan Alvarez of my Astros, who had an outstanding month of June, was absolutely amazing, um, you know, leads baseball in OPS. Uh, and, you know, obviously that was a big part of June is to, to have that title here as we head into July. But uh, he had nine home runs, 28 RBIs, uh, had the same amount of walks as he did strikeouts. So he's just an absolute animal to play. He's so good uh, just looking for his pitch and be able to do damage every single time. He's, you know, great play discipline for a slugger like that. Uh, he just was so awesome in, t- in the entire month of June. Right from the start, he won, you know, player of the week in the first week of June and just continued to hammer the baseball the rest of the month and rightfully earned uh, player of the month uh, for the American League in the month of June. Yeah, Jordan Alvarez certainly has been phenomenal this season for the Astros, and I think he was great last year, and then this year he's taken another step, and it's just been, you know, so awesome all year long, and certainly in June that just continued to happen, you know, and some people think of him as like a power hitter, but he's a guy who can not only hit for power, but can also hit for average, he's just been fantastic. Right in the middle of that Houston lineup has been their best batter, and a, and a lineup that has a lot of quality bats, and so it's been fun to watch for Alvarez, and then Schwarber, like you mentioned, won the uh, NL Player of the Month last year whenever he's with the Nationals, and June and then this year he does with the Phillies also here in the month of June it's apparently he loves it when you get to that sixth month of the year and he's just been phenomenal for the Phillies and like you said perhaps he's a little bit underrated I know I didn't vote for him in the all-star in the phase one of the all-star ballot uh, because it went a slightly different direction but certainly he's a guy that I think deserves to be there certainly you know leads the National League in home runs only two behind you know Aaron Judge for the major league lead and so certainly what he did in June was phenomenal he's continued to here in July he's had back-to-back two home run games yesterday and today and so he's been fantastic and certainly was that in June. And then lastly, the relievers of the month for the American League, it was Emmanuel Classe with the Cleveland Guardians, who was absolutely lights out for the Guardians in the month of June. He had 11 saves in the month and did not allow a run in the entire month and did not walk a batter in the entire month. And that was in 15 appearances over the course of June. He was just incredible for the Guardians. And, you know, certainly he's a guy who, man, did they get, and they acquired him a few years ago whenever they traded Corey Kluber to the Rangers. And gosh, they got themselves an amazing player. I think he's going to be a really good closer for a long time. And then for the NL reliever of the month, it was Edwin Diaz of the New York Mets, who won his sixth career reliever of the month award and his first in the NL as he won five when he was in the Mariners in the American. 
American League, and he won. And so this is his first one since being a Met. He was fantastic in the month of June, had a 0.93 ERA uh, in uh, 10 appearances while, while recording five saves in that span, having 21 strikeouts, only one walk. And so he's just a guy who's been fantastic all year for New York. They've been a great team, and he's certainly been great for them in the back end of their bullpen, nailing down games time and time again. And, you know, apparently on this website that I'm looking at, it's the score.com, and they said that he actually broke a tie with Josh Hader for the most reliever of the month awards all time because he now has six, and Josh Hader has five in his career, and that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that is pretty amazing, uh, certainly. And both those guys, like you mentioned, awesome months for their teams. They've been really dynamic all year. They have some of the best stuff in baseball, certainly, and that's why they're closers. That's why they're so effective, and they also have that confidence. They're going to nail it down in the ninth inning, and uh, it's been great for those two guys to be recognized this month. Uh, you know, obviously, Classe in the American League. And the, the Guardians, you know, they've struggled, you know, to start July, but up until that point, they've been hanging around. He's been a big part of that, being able to close games late. And then Edwin Diaz as well has had a really nice season and he's finally comfortable in New York and I think that shows by getting his first reliever of the month there in a Mets uniform so that rounds out the players of the month uh, we're going to move on to our next note from last Saturday which uh, we saw the Cardinals uh, do something pretty cool against the Phillies uh, so we had Nolan Arnauto hit for the cycle against them on Friday night and then he was a big part of history on Saturday uh, as they went back to back to back to back against Kyle Gibson we saw Nolan Arnauto start that run he had a solo shot and then Nolan Gorman followed him up with a home run Juan Yepes and Dylan Carlson made it four consecutive home runs for the Cardinals it was in the 11th time in MLB history that it's happened the first ever in Cardinals history. So we don't see it very often. And certainly anytime you hit back-to-back, it's really cool. But when you do it four consecutive home runs, man, that was uh, quite the scene. That was quite an accomplishment by the Cardinals. And I think they were the first team to ever do that in the first inning as well, which is incredible, you know, and it just, you know, it's kind of tough for Kyle Gibson. Then he went out there. I think he, I actually think that all of the damage came with two outs. I'm pretty sure Nolan Arnott's home run was a two run shot after Goldschmidt reached. And so, you know, he ends up having two outs and he's almost out of the inning. And then all of a sudden, boom, four straight home runs, five runs on the board, all with two outs. And, you know, like I said, that never happened before in the first inning. And it hasn't happened that much in general, only only happening now for the 11th time in MLB history. And so, yeah, it's definitely cool to see it. You said it's cool when you see back-to-back home runs. It's awesome to see three in a row, but then you have four in a row, and it's incredible. And it begs the question, will we ever see five in a row? Because I don't think that's ever happened before. Uh, you know, certainly it seems like we've seen four, obviously, a number of times now, but not that much when you consider how many games are played each and every day. But it's, it would certainly be interesting to see if we ever see five in a row, and that would be quite the accomplishment. But certainly the Cardinals doing it four times in a row, that was really cool to see. Uh, but then it was kind of crazy to happen in the first inning because then they had to like kind of settle down and so a long ways to go and it being a competitive game down that stretch and a game they won you know late in the game thanks to another home run by Arenado late in the game but certainly a great accomplishment by St. Louis yeah definitely and we also have uh, another you know another note for Saturday we like two more actually but one that we wanted to mention here briefly was the Minnesota Twins uh, they were part of walk-offs in four straight games they were the first team to play in four straight walk-off games in 2010 when the Diamondbacks played in five straight so they lost two walk-offs in a row on the road against the Guardians when we mentioned that Josh Naylor two-run home run and the Andres Jimenez had a two-run home run against them and then on Friday they were part of two consecutive walk-off wins against the Orioles with Byron Buxton had a two-run home run on Friday night, and then Jose Miranda had an RBI single on Saturday. And they were actually trailing going on the night thing in both of those games and scored two runs in each of them to win. So 
pretty cool stuff for the Twins. Like the first half was frustrating. Second half, they were to be on the right side of walk-off, which is always the most exciting. I think some of the most exciting plays in baseball, certainly. And then the last note from Saturday, we saw Riley Green in his first career home run for the Tigers, and it was a walk-off winner. Uh, so really cool stuff for the, the Tigers. Been playing better baseball all of a sudden. They're on a little bit of a good streak here. Um, they won like four of their last or five of their last six, I think. And uh, we saw Victor Reyes hit his first career home or first home run of the season in the ninth inning to tie the game at three. And then Riley Green goes up there and hits his first career home run to win the game for the Tigers. So he's been a guy who I think ever since he got healthy and has been officially part of the team, because I know he was a guy who I believe was supposed to make the major league roster coming out of spring training, but had an injury to deal with. Now he's healthy. He's with the team. I think he's been a really good presence for them. Uh, he's been really good at the plate, very disciplined. And for a young hitter, he's been very impressive. Yeah, I think Riley Green has certainly, you know, provided a lot of spark to that Tigers lineup, a team that really has struggled all season offensively, but he's come up here and been really good for them. And it's good to see him healthy. You know, it kind of begs the question of what they could look like if he would have started the season healthy because he was going to be on the team, I believe, when the season started, but he had an ankle injury or a foot injury or something like that that prevented him from being healthy when the season started. And so he had to recover from that before he was finally able to come up here in the middle part of the season. And he's been terrific for them. And certainly, you know, now he's betting leadoff, as you mentioned, I believe, and has been really a great force at the top of the lineup. I didn't mention he was betting leadoff. I, mean, I did mention some of the things you just said about, oh, okay. about him being injured and stuff. <laughs> he finally zoned out. I zoned out because I was looking, I was finding this, uh, I had to do something on my phone briefly okay. for later on. Yeah. But yeah, certainly he it would have been nice if he would have been here at the beginning of the season. But now that he is here, he's playing really well. He's betting leadoff for the Tigers and has provided a great spark for them at the top of the lineup. He's done some amazing things for them so far. And he's done some great things out in the field too, defensively making some big catches in the outvote. And so he's been fun to watch and, it's great to see him have that first career home run be a walk-off. Definitely. Uh, as we move over to Sunday, we have one note uh, there from Sunday. We saw the Astros uh, have 20 strikeouts in a nine-inning game against the Angels, which I believe was tied for the most in MLB history for a nine-inning game. It was uh, the most in franchise history for my Astros. We saw Framber Valdez have 13 strikeouts. He actually had 12 straight strikeouts in the game, which is also a franchise record. Hector Neris had a couple of Ks. Rafael Montero had two strikeouts. And Ryan Presley struck out the side in the ninth. And then the Astros turned it over to the bottom of the ninth where Jeremy Pena hit a two-run home run to walk it off for the sweep against the Angels. So uh, that was really cool. And uh, it was also the Astros also had 48 strikeouts in the entire in the three-game series, which is also the most in MLB history uh, for a series or for you know without the benefit of extra innings according to stats. So that's really amazing. And the Angels are a team that's kind of tough to strike out usually. It's the Astros again showing their pitching dominance and just absolutely going nuts against the Halos. As we move over to Monday, July 4th, we have the Julio Rodriguez stat that we were mentioned uh, earlier a couple of times. Uh, but Julio Rodriguez became the fastest player in MLB history to reach 15 career home runs and 20 career stolen bases. He did it in his first 81 career games. Uh, he also joined a pretty exclusive club to do it in their age 21 or younger, uh, or as, as a 21-year-old or younger in MLB history over any 81 game span, along with Ronald Acuna Jr. in 2019, Mike Trout back in 2012, Andrew Jones in 1998, and Cesar Sandino in 1972. So uh, really great stuff for Julio Rodriguez, who we just talked about winning player of the month in the month of June. He starts July with another great game. Uh, he just continues to mash uh, for the Mariners and continues to be a big product, a big key cog in their offensive system. Yeah, he won the player of the month, the rookie of the month award in May and June. And then it started off July 
really trying to make it three in a row, it looks like. And he certainly has been fantastic all year for the Mariners. And as you mentioned, that's a great stat right there. And it's amazing to see him do that in his first 81 career games. And, you know, certainly feels like he's going to, he's, he's kind of like the next superstar in this game. He's already been a fantastic player to watch so far. But, I mean, the way he's playing right now, you know, we'll see how he finishes up his rookie season here in the second half of the year. But certainly he seems like he's on the trajectory to be one of those guys that we mentioned the same likes of Tatis Jr. and Acuna Jr. And, you know, those young guys that we are still excited to watch night in and night out and he's playing really well right now for the Mariners who are playing better lately and are getting close to getting back to 500 and you know hopefully for them they're a team that you and I both thought could make the playoffs this year for a while they were having a disappointing season but they've started to play better lately they're almost back to 500 if they get there maybe they can start building off of that you know there's still a lot of games left to be played and they're not too far behind in the AL wildcard race so you know with him leading the way they still have a chance to do some great things this year and we'll see what happens down the stretch. Definitely a guy who gets a lot of media attention, too, because he's a fun player to watch. And so uh, it seems like everything's on the right track for him and his young career. Uh, we saw the Twins turn an 8-5 triple play on Monday, uh, which was the first, I believe, 8-5 triple play in MLB history. I also saw a number. I also saw that maybe it was the like, – I think it was that. That was the case. But I think it was also like the first triple play started by a center fielder in like 12 years or something. It's been crazy. It was uh, Byron Bucks who made a great catch uh, towards the warning track. And, and then we saw um, Adam Engel make a horrible base running mistake that he thought the ball was off the wall and he leaves third he left second base without tagging up and then Yohan Makata didn't do a very good job either he was following Engel and that was a mistake because Engel messed up and all of a sudden they get an 8-5 triple play as Buxton throws it back in Urshela tags out Moncada in between second and third and then taps the bag at second to, to complete the triple play so obviously triple plays are really exciting you don't see them all the time you definitely don't see 8-5 triple plays very often and uh, the look on Tony LaRusso's face was kind of comical he was just stunned like what are we doing out here guys and the White Sox have had some moments this year where they've been poor defensively and that was a horrible base running mistake and uh they ended up losing that game so not ideal certainly uh, especially the game at home i think everyone was probably pretty frustrated with that one so as we move on to the last day of notes here we have players of the week uh come out yesterday for uh you know obviously the week i was gonna say for the I don't know, we were really talking about months, but obviously well, the end of June, beginning of uh, July, and we have to mention Julio Rodriguez one more time because Julio Rodriguez was the player of the week this week in the American League. He had three home runs, a 1,273 OPS, uh, and then we also had Reese Hoskins for the Phillies. It was the National League Player of the Week presented by Chevrolet. He had four home runs and OPS over 1,600. So those two guys mashed uh, really well last week, did a great job for their teams. Uh, the Phillies certainly hanging around the 500 mark in the playoff picture. The Mariners, we mentioned playing good baseball lately. Julio Rodriguez has been a big part of that. And certainly when Ty France comes back, they both kind of, because Ty, Ty France having a great season. Now Rodriguez is having a great season as well, kind of coming into his own. Mariners certainly are playing better and uh, they certainly hope to keep this moving into the summer. Excuse me, what were you right there for Oh, second? actually, my bad. I forgot you weren't going to talk about players of the week. It's my yeah, bad. Okay. I, always <laughs> forget, I always forget about that all yeah, the time. I was like, yeah. wait a second, because I was looking at something. There's not much more to say anyway. I'm glad it's good to think you don't talk about that, because I, I think I covered it all, what we needed to say. The last couple of notes here, we saw Max Scherzer make his return last night to the New York Mets, and uh, actually lost the game one nothing to your Reds, uh, but he was awesome uh, for the Mets. Six innings, very efficient, had 11 strikeouts and no walks, and so he actually became, uh, well, he put himself in second uh, all-time, all by himself now, for having the most starts of 10-plus strikeouts and zero walks in MLB history. Uh, Randy Johnson actually leads this list with 36. Max Scherzer now second all-time with 28. He passed up Kurt Schilling, who has 27. So it's not – it's an interesting stat. It's not like a very – it's not like – I don't want to say it's a cherry-pick stat by any means. It's just kind of a stat that's uh, a little more isolated, but certainly it's a pretty uh, remarkable. We know Max Scherzer has been one of the best in the game for a long time, and that certainly puts into perspective a little bit. 
uh, more. And then the last thing here, I put seven innings Sandy on here because we saw Sandy Alcantara pitch seven innings. Actually, went eight innings last night uh, of shutout baseball against the Angels and what was a sixth straight win for my Marlins at the time. I always believe it's win day when Sandy Alcantara is on the mound. It certainly was the case last night. That was his 11th consecutive start of seven innings or more, which I believe was the most since 2016. That or I thought I thought I also saw a stat that it was it was tied for the longest since 2014. So either way, we see Sandy Alcantara going deep every single start. It seems like nowadays. Uh, and we've talked about him a number of times on the podcast and in this episode alone, how great he's been this year. Yeah, it's hard to say enough good things about Sanyo Contra because he's been so fantastic this year. And just the length he's providing for the Marlins is not like anybody else in MLB so far this season. They said last night on MLB tonight that he went eight innings last night. And that was already the eighth time this season that he's pitched eight innings or more. And nobody else in MLB has more than three. And so it just puts it into perspective that he is unlike any other pitcher right now in MLB in terms of the way he goes out there and just racks up, you know, just gets a ton of outs. And he's able to be so efficient to where he's able to work deep into ball games and give the Marlins incredible length time in time in and time out and, and it feels like uh or i should i should have said time and time again it feels like every time he starts though that you have a chance to go all the way you know you certainly feel like there's a lot of and i don't think we get that kind of feeling with uh any other pitcher in mlb right now but whenever sandy's on the mound you certainly feel like he might be able to go all the way each time he goes out there because he's going seven innings every single time no matter what it feels like and a lot of time he goes eight and then sometimes he goes nine and so it's just fun to see and he's kind of uh, just built different right now really i mean but i think what he's doing is what we used to see sometimes in MLB when pitchers used to go deeper into ball games, but now in this current state of MLB where pitchers aren't, don't usually go that deep into ball games, you know, Sandy certainly is an outlier and stands out amongst the crowd. And he's been fantastic this year. And I think I would also like to see him start the All Star game for the National League because I think he deserves it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been so much fun. And last night I was keeping up with it. And I think he retired the first 14 he faced before Luis Renhufu had a, a single against him, two outs in the fourth. And I always feel like every time, like, time he goes out there, he has a chance to throw a no hitter because his stuff is that good. And definitely he has a chance to go all the way. We saw Don Mattingly uh, say, you know, last night that he was going to bring him out for the ninth, let him finish the game. But because we had a little bit of a long bottom of the eighth, they didn't want to leave him on the, you know, sitting in the dugout for too long. It was, it was already like over 100 pitches, which isn't anything surprising, but you wonder a little bit. And of course, he's a horse. But at the same time, the Tanner Scott came in there and kind of made it interesting there. Thankfully, he got the save and got the win. But uh, certainly, I do feel like every time he goes out there, and I think I know he wants to. I've heard us talk about it before. I think Paul Severino on the broadcast said before, like, Sandy Alcantara is like, this is what I work for. I go out there and I try to pitch the entire game every time I go out there. And I think that's been representative all season long because of how deep he goes in the game. I don't know if he doesn't go seven innings, it's surprising. So we've seen that from Sandy Alcantara here in 2022. Uh, as we move on now, we are done with our news and notes. We want to say one more thing about Major League Baseball is, of course, All-Star voting. We have the All-Star game coming up very soon. We'll have the All-Star starters revealed uh, on Friday night, and then we'll have the rosters revealed on Sunday. So we're very close to getting all that done. We did have Phase 1 voting in last Thursday. We have Phase 2 voting in this Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. All right, first, I just want to say what my ballot was real fast. We're not going to break this down at all. I don't have any stats. I think we can break down the starters more once they're revealed if we want to go into that. But I did vote for Vladimir. Guerrero Jr. of the Blue Jays at first base in the American League. Uh, I'll just go down the line in the American League. I had Jose Altuve from my Astros at second base. Um, I had Jose Ramirez from the Cleveland Guardians at third base. Uh, Bo Bichette with the Toronto Blue Jays at shortstop. Byron Buxton with the Minnesota Twins in the outfield. He did not make uh, the cut, which was very disappointing because he's had over 20 home runs this year, which I don't think anybody else in the American League outside of the other two outfielders that I voted for with Aaron Judge, the Yankees, and Mike Trout with the Angels have to say about that. I don't know why I didn't get more votes, but it is what it is. Alejandro Kirk with the Blue Jays uh, as, as the catcher, which is just easy pick because he's been awesome this year. And Jordan Alvarez with my Astros as a DH because of what he's done this year. And the National League at 
first base, I had Paul Goldschmidt from the Cardinals. At second base, Jazz Chisholm with my Marlins, who's hurt right now. But the other finalist ended up being Ozzy Albies, also hurt right now. So I just hope that and he'll be out longer for sure. Jazz has a chance to be back for the All-Star, uh, for the All-Star game. I certainly hope he can get back and healthy again because he's deserving of it. It'd be really cool. Manny Machado at third base. Uh, I have Manny Machado from the Padres at third base. Trey Turner with the Dodgers. I haven't met shortstop. Uh, as my for my outfield, I have Mookie Betts from the Dodgers, Jock Peterson with the Giants, and Kyle Schorber with the Phillies. So I did not vote for Ronald Acuna Jr., who ended up being the All Star uh, or the, uh, the vote getter, the All the uh, vote getter in the National League for the All Star. <laughs> trying to say that, so he's already locked in. I, I mean, obviously he's a great player, and I'm, he's an All Star certainly. But I just feel like this year he can't. You know, I wasn't healthy to start the season. He came back, he's played well, but he hasn't played as well as Schorber has. And so I just wanted to go a different direction. I mean, he got all the votes anyway. So it's not a big deal. And then. Wilson Contreras from uh, the Cubs is my catcher, and then Bryce Harper from the Phillies is my DH. But of course, Harper's out with that thumb injury. He's not going to be able to play. It's likely going to be William Contreras from the Braves at the DH. So uh, the two brothers are likely going to be in it together, which that's going to be cool to see. Yeah, it should be really fun if that ends up being the case. And then for me, I, I'm not going to waste our time here. I had everything the same as you except for a couple of positions here. You had Bo Bichette as your starting shortstop in the American League. Of course, Bichette with the Blue Jays, and I voted for Alexander Bogarts with the Red Sox instead to, to be my starting shortstop in the All-Star game. So, uh, you know, and honestly, you could go both ways, though. They're both having great seasons, and it's, it's going to be exciting to see how that goes down the stretch. Although I don't know if Bogarts actually made the cut uh, to be with did he? I, I don't think so. I have to, I, I'm about to disclose that real quick, and that won't take very long either. Yeah, but that's why I voted for. I don't think he ended up making it in the final running here, but it is what it is. And then for me, I did vote for Ronald Acuna Jr. of the Braves instead of you voting for – instead of uh, Kyle Schwarber with the voice who you voted for uh, for the National League outfield, one of those National League outfield spots. And uh, other than that, everything else that you said, I did the same thing as you, and so our ballots were very similar. Our phase one ballots were very similar, even though we obviously didn't you know, coalesce in that process. I did mine by myself, as did you. Uh, but yeah, I'm happy to see Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, get to, you know, was the leading vote-getter in the National League, and so he's automatically slotted in as one of those starting outfielders. And I know that you've talked about him you know, not being as good this year you know, so well, he he started off the season, you know, hurt. Obviously, he was still recovering from that torn ACL from last year, and so it took him a little while to be to be able to come back up here and play for the Braves. And then he he's had his up and he's had his moments. The season so far hasn't been up to the same caliber as we've seen him in the past. But I feel like last year he didn't get to play in the All Star game because he got hurt just a few days before the All Star break. I think it was literally just a couple of days before it when he tore his ACL against the Marlins, and he certainly was going to be in the All Star game as one of those starters, and unfortunately got hurt and wasn't able to do that and so I think kind of going back to last year a little bit I don't know if the fans were thinking this too but he certainly deserved to be in it last year and even though his numbers don't necessarily garner it this year I think going back to last year he should be in there he deserves to be in there uh, this year in place of last year because he couldn't do it and I think he's certainly one of the most exciting and exhilarating players in the game and it'll be fun to see him in Los Angeles in the all-star game and so I'm happy that they were able to get him in there and you know just being the leading booker in the NL he's already automatically slotted in as a starter and that's great to see for Acuna Jr. for the game on base yeah, I can certainly respect that. I mean, I would have voted for him if the numbers were a little better. I, I try to stick to the stick to the numbers and try to be a little bit different. But I certainly respect that. And I, I mean, he's a fun player to watch. I definitely believe he's an all-star like every year. Just didn't think the numbers were good enough. But at the end of the day, he's going to be there. And I don't have a problem with it. Uh, he's a fun player to watch. And so he'll be in there for the National League as the vote-getter there and uh, in the outfield. And then we have, you know, as for the other four outfielders that made the cut, Mookie Betts and Jock Peterson, uh, well, like all four of them. So because I guess it doesn't only matter where they play. Um, but Mookie Betts, Jock 
Peterson, Starling Marte with the Mets, and then Adam Duvall with the Braves as the four outfield candidates there remaining. Manny Machado and Nolan Arenado. Uh, Arenado, of course, the Cardinals are at third base, the final two there. Uh, we have Trey Turner uh, and there at shortstop and Dansby Swanson of the Braves as well. It'll be a good battle because Swanson's had a great season as well and down the stretch here, certainly. Uh, cutting into the summertime, he's been really awesome of the last couple of weeks, uh, certainly. Ozzy Albies at second base with the Braves and Jazz Chisholm with my Marlins, as I mentioned earlier. Those two guys at second base, they're both currently on the injured list, so we'll see how that goes. Paul Goldschmidt and then Pete Alonso of the Mets at first base, the finalists in the National League. Uh, again, Wilson Contreras of the Cubs uh, as the catcher there alongside Travis Darnot of the Braves are the two finalists there at catcher in the DH spot. Again, Bryce Harper of the Phillies and William Contreras of the Braves. And again, like I mentioned, Harper's hurt. So it's going to be Contreras. And he's had a nice season. Certainly doesn't get a ton of playing time, but he's had some moments there. And that'd be cool to see likely the Contreras brothers together at the All-Star game. It's going to be cool for those guys. Uh, in the National League, as we filmed with the American League, Aaron Judge was the leading vote-getter of the Yankees. Of course, that was expected in an unbelievable season, so he's locked into an outfield spot. The other outfielders are Mike Trout, George Springer of the Blue Jays, John Carlos Stanton of the Yankees, and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. of the Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays were well-represented, and they voted really well. Uh, the Toronto fans certainly showed out because I don't feel like Gurriel Jr. should have been a finalist here. Byron Buxton definitely should have been the finalist, in my opinion. But I guess my opinion doesn't really matter. Those are your outfielders there. Uh, Jose Ramirez and then Rafael Devers of the Red Sox at third base finalists both those two guys having awesome seasons it's going to be it's just I think it's probably the best battle between two candidates because they're both so deserving of that third base spot in the American League Boba Shett and then Tim Anderson of the White Sox at shortstop, the finalist there. Jose Altuve and my Astros, who having a great season this year. He hasn't started the All-Star game in a little while, so hopefully he gets and he should. The other candidate is Santiago Espinal of the Blue Jays. He's had a nice season, but not as good as Altuve for sure at second base. And then Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and then Ty France of the Mariners are the finalists at first base. France, again, as I mentioned, hurt right now. That certainly hurt his chances because I think he was right there with Guerrero to some extent. Uh, and so it's probably going to be Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but we'll see. And then we have the catchers, Alejandro Kirk of the Blue Blue Jays, as I mentioned earlier, and then Jose Trevino of the Yankees. Um, that'll be Kirk's battle. I mean, Kirk's definitely going to get the spot there. He's had an awesome season for the Blue Jays. The best off of the catcher in the American League for sure will be behind the dish out there in L.A. And then Jordan Alvarez of my Astros. Again, the DH spot has, a, has an amazing season. 25 home runs as we speak at the moment. And then Shohei Otani, of course, of the Angels, the other finalist there at the DH spot. And he'll be in there as a pitcher. He should be at least. Uh, he's had a great season at play as well, but not as good as Jordan. So you would think that Alvarez would get it, but we'll see. Shohei Tony is certainly deserving of some place in the All-Star game just because what he does on the mound and at the plate. So those are the American League finals as well. And that'll all be decided again. Phase 2 voting ends Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, as I mentioned earlier. So it's between all of those guys. And certainly some guys got snubbed. And we'll have some role. And they'll have the, you know, after all that's done, they'll, you know, the MLB and I think the players have a ballot and the commissioner's office likes folks and all that stuff. So they'll select all the pitchers and the bench players and anybody else that gets to be there. Uh, certainly, uh, hopefully, we'll, we're going to have some snubs somewhere along the way. But uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of great players are going to be out there in L.A. And we'll talk about that more next week once the rosters are out and we get to kind of look ahead uh, at the all-star game, which again is a couple weeks away. Yeah. And you know, last year we ended up doing the entire, we like made our own rosters and, and who we thought should be on there for, you know, the starting lineup and who we thought should, what pitchers should make it and the relief pitches and all that stuff. And I think that was fun last year, but we didn't get around doing that this year because it was kind of exhausting last year doing that because, you know, we had to go through a ton of players to think about it and we had to like understand like how they select 
the uh, rosters and how many pitchers you're supposed to have on there and all that stuff. And uh, we enjoyed it, but I think we just didn't really get around to doing it this year because we've been kind of busy lately. And I mean, if we wanted to do it, we probably would have done it sometime in this past week before this episode. And this past week has been pretty busy for us when we had our birthday and then we had July 4th and all that stuff. And so we didn't really have time for it anyways, but I think we're fine with that because again, it was a pretty, it was a fun exercise, but it was pretty taxing and we're not going to bother doing that again. We'll look forward to uh, when the MLB reveals the rosters uh, here this uh, upcoming, uh, this week or here on Sunday. And then we can, we'll rather, we can just have fun and join and we can just have fun kind of evaluating the rosters once they come out and talking about, you know, who rightfully made it and, and also who we think maybe got snubbed and should be there and isn't. But of course, it's always kind of a difficult exercise for for them doing it too because they have to make sure that, that every team is represented. And so that was another thing we had to do last year too is make sure that we got one player from each team in the All-Star game. And sometimes it's not always easy to do when there's some teams that don't have players that deserve to be in there. But it'll be fun to see the rosters once they're revealed on Sunday. Uh, as you mentioned, they're going to be revealing the starting lineups on Sunday and I guess you're doing the rest of it too. Um, and we'll look forward to when that happens and kind of breaking it down next week once they're all revealed. And of course, the All-Star game on Tuesday, July 19th. So just a little under two weeks away and we're looking forward to it greatly. Yeah, definitely. And that was a very taxing exercise last year. I remember it took as long as we thought I was going to to prep for that episode. Not that we could have gone through it again. Kind of just, I want, I honestly feel like maybe we could have, but maybe we kind of forgot that it was happening so fast with the rosters. And I mean, it's not a big deal. We did it last year. Again, it was a very difficult exercise. And it's one that, uh, the end of the episode took us a long time last year, of course, on all these episodes now. This season has taken a long time. So it could have taken even longer, though. At the end of the day, we just didn't bother with it this year. Uh, whatever the rosters end up being is what they end up being. And it is what it is. And certainly, again, there'll be a lot of great players in LA and there might be some snubs certainly like there always is, but uh, it'll be fun to see what those rosters end up looking like next week or at the end of the week, the starters on Friday when they get revealed Friday night and then Saturday or Sunday rather when they get revealed the entire rosters. So always a fun time of the year to see who's going to be there. The 92nd midsummer classic there at Dodger stadium. So that's all we have for major league baseball. Took us a little while to get through that segment. Typically always does. We had a lot of notes and a lot of cool stuff that happened and, um, at the end of the day, we're in a good spot right now. There, we'll move on to golf. We'll make this pretty quick. We don't need to talk about it for too long. We'll recap the John Deere Classic here for a moment. Didn't watch a lot of this one. The leaderboard wasn't stacked with a lot of big names. A number of guys kind of taking some time off. I know there was a pro-am out there in uh, Scotland, I believe, this past weekend. And then obviously, we have the Scottish Open, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, happening as well. So, And with the, the Open Championship coming up soon, I think some big name players are kind of taking some time off, which certainly leaves the open for a lot of players that aren't as big uh, around the PGA Tour to get you know an opportunity to go win a tournament or gain a lot of FedEx Cup points as we get closer to the FedEx Cup playoffs. And we saw JT Poston uh, win the John Deere Classic at 21 under par. He was absolutely fantastic all weekend long. And uh, it was his second career PGA Tour win. Uh, he was, uh, you know, like I said, 21 under par. And that all started with a 9 under 62 on, on a Thursday. And then he had a 6 under 65 on Tuesday. And then followed it up with a 5 under uh, over the weekend with a 67 and 69 to get to 21 under par. So uh, a really great uh, stretch of golf for him. Or a, a, well, yeah, actually a 6 under over the weekend there with a 67 and 69. So he was awesome. He had the lead going into the final round. And it was a three-stroke lead going into Sunday. And he was able to hold on and win by three strokes over Christian uh, Bezin. How, is that, how do you say his name? Do you? I think that might have been right. It's uh, you know, the, the South African, so kind of an f- interesting last name. I don't have the pronunciation guide out, but yeah, he finished second at 18 under par, a tie for second with Emilio, uh, excuse me, Emiliano Grillo at 18 under par as well. So, uh, But JT Poston was in contention at the Travelers Championship last week. I think he finished at a tie for a second. He comes back, wins the John Deere Classic with an outstanding week. Uh, and now he's eligible for the Open Championship a couple weeks from now. He's, uh, I think, 22nd now in FedEx Cup standings points, and he also won wire to wire, which is the first winner, only the third time at uh, the winner 
winner of the John Deere Classic. It's been wire to wire in the first since 1992, I think. So Poston was absolutely awesome. Yeah, Poston was really uh, terrific this past weekend at the John Deere Classic, and that was cool to see for him. Uh, like you said, we didn't watch this tournament a lot because it was kind of a busy weekend for us, and you know, we were kind of moving around and doing a lot of different things. And so you know, there wasn't a lot of time for me to sit down and really watch it, which I think is fine because I don't have to watch every single week. And like you mentioned already, there weren't a lot of big-name players there uh, because a lot of guys were in that Pro-Am in Scotland and also kind of just taking some time off before the Open Championship in a couple of weeks, which is obviously the big one that we're looking forward to as the last major of the year. But you still have to give credit to the guys who went out there and competed and played at the John Deere Classic here this past weekend. And like you mentioned, Poston was phenomenal from the beginning of the round or, or rather from the beginning of the weekend with that terrific first round, 62, and then he carried it all the way through the weekend and held the lead the entire time, which is not always, which is not easy to do by any means and so you have to give him credit for that to get the win at 21 under par there in Illinois uh, and like you said Christian Bazudenhout I guess is how I could pronounce it um, got you know finished tied for a second with Emiliano Grillo and so that was cool to see for those two guys at 18 under par as we move forward through the rest of the top 10 we had Christopher Goderup who finished uh, tied for fourth along with Scott Stallings at 17 under par and so those two guys obviously played well this past weekend and then we had two points also finished tied for sixth in Callum Terran and Denny McCarthy, who both were 16 under par uh, at the end of the round, or rather, or rather at the end of the weekend. And so uh, those were your top six. And now I'll let Tyler finish up the rest of the top 10 uh, here at the John Deere Classic. Yeah, Maverick McNeely, uh, Maverick McNeely, excuse me, was tied for eighth with Cam Davis at 15 under par. And then we had a couple of had three players tied for 10th at 14 under par with Patrick Flavin, Cheston Hadley, and Michael Gligich. So um, we saw Cheston Hadley finish in the top 10. I believe he was in the top 10 last week as well at the Travelers Championship. So good for him, a couple of top 10 finishes and certainly helping himself out. Christopher Goderup is actually, I believe he just finished his career in Oklahoma and not an amateur. I think he's, a, he's obviously... He doesn't have the 8X to his name, so he's not an amateur. He's a pro now and uh, certainly was a great player at Oklahoma, and now he's you know finishing in the top five here at the John Deere Classic, so good for him. I believe that's the same player. It's a pretty unique last name. I don't think that's – I mean, he looked familiar, certainly, and unless I'm totally, unless somebody totally different, but I believe that's the case, so good for him getting in the top five. And like I said, not a lot of big names that competed – um, this week at the John Deere Classic, but certainly a lot of guys who give themselves an opportunity to help themselves out moving forward. And, you know, we're only a couple of, we're only like a month away from the FedEx Cup playoffs starting. Uh, the FedEx Cup playoffs start um, on August 11th at the FedEx St. Jude Championship. So we're, you know, just a little over a month away from the, you know, three tournament uh, or three match tournament essentially to crown the FedEx Cup champion. So again, we have, you know, that's kind of the biggest goal here down the stretch outside the Open Championship is trying to get put yourself in a position to uh, have a chance to go make a run there at the of the season so a lot of young guys and a lot of more inexperienced and a lot of big you know smaller name guys had a chance to do that this week at the John Deere Classic so good for them and then moving forward we have a couple of tournaments actually happening this week and we have the Barbasol Championship happening in Kentucky um, and that one was won by Seamus Power last year that'll be on the golf channel only the biggest tournament or the big tournament this weekend is the Genesis Scottish Open happening at the Rizons Club in North Berwick, Scotland. So this is actually, I think, the first year that the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour are doing this event together. Uh, this one will be on CBS and the Golf Channel and everywhere else. It typically is. Uh, this is a really stacked field. I think 14 of the top 15 players in the world are going to be competing. I, don't, I think Rory McIlroy might be the only one that's not out of that top 15 that's going to be competing this weekend there. I think I, you know, I heard Kyle Porter from CBS Sports talking about how the field is like a competitive score 
around 600, which is, I don't know how the, the rating works, but being that the case, I think he said it's, uh, it's not unlike uh, the Players' Championship and some World Golf Championships. It's going to be that competitive of a golf tournament this week with the field that's going to be there in Scotland. So it's going to be a fun one to watch. I'm certainly going to want to tune into this one. It's the last tournament until the Open Championship at St. Andrews uh, there in Scotland as well next week. So a lot of big-name players get a chance to hit the links out there in Scotland and kind of get a little warm-up and get ready for the Open Championship next week. But this is going to be a fun tournament to watch, I think. And I, I look forward to watching it for the probably for the first time, honestly. Yeah, it sounds like it should be a good time, and it should be really fun to watch it. You know, certainly, uh, like you mentioned earlier, the John Deere class, and a lot of big-name players there, but still guys that were going out there and competing and trying to get uh, further along in the FedEx Cup standings. I have to give those guys credit. But now this week, we get some more excitement with some, you know, higher, uh, with some bigger-name players and some higher-caliber players out there competing at the Genesis Scottish Open this weekend, and that should be fun to watch. Uh, like I said, we also have the Barbasol Championship happening in Kentucky, which won't be on the Golf Channel, but, you know, you could tune into little if you wanted to if you have the golf channel and i think you might be able to because i'm pretty sure that like uh if these if you know and so the genesis scottish opens in scotland right and so i'm they're different time zone than us and so i think what's going to happen is we're going to have like you have to wake up kind of early to watch these ones because i know that's how the open works that's how it's going to be next week too is you know we have the uh the open championship is that they're in a different time zone than us and so it's not going to be your your you know normal here in the states where you watch it from like two to five normally on the weekends uh so this is probably more early on in the day for the scottish open we'll probably finish somewhere around you know probably like nine to noon or something on that time five to just guess somewhere in that range uh and so maybe the barbasso championship can actually be something you would be able to watch if you wanted to on the golf channel there at a normal time later on in the afternoon but ultimately it should be fun to watch uh the scottish open more so than the barbasso championship but either way we have a couple of good tournaments happening this weekend and it should be interesting to see what happens at both of these events yeah i have more to add on that for a moment you're right you're definitely has a good point by you with the whole time uh time zone thing because i believe that uh some of the earliest tea times like three in the morning here in the states on eastern time at least so i, I don't know when it's going to end it'll probably in early afternoon or right around noon i think it'll last a little bit longer i, I believe they opened last year I remember ending right right around noon or a little bit after so some of those guys are going to be teeing off like eight o'clock in the morning which is more appropriate but again you're right about that. going to get up really early here in the states if you want to watch um and certainly that'll be uh, fun to tune into this weekend as much as I can. I usually don't get up that early, so we'll see how much golf I get to watch, but I'll keep up with it. I always read the CBS Sports Analysis that comes out afterwards, whether it be uh, Kyle Porter or Patrick McDonald. I believe that right that right for those guys, it's always nice, because if I don't get a chance to watch, at least I want to read a little bit about it, so we'll see how it goes this week on the PGA Tour, and that's really all we have for the world of golf for now. Looking forward to the Open Championship next week, but we'll talk about that obviously next week. We'll preview it a little bit and make our picks and all. We'll definitely preview it enough where we'll make our picks and our top tens and all that stuff, but that's all we need to talk about for golf for now. I don't need to talk anymore because I know this episode's already really long. We can go ahead and just check that box, move on. We'll go ahead and double dupe now. We only have a couple of topics that should be really quick. We'll actually go out to college sports a little bit here. As of last Thursday, on our birthday, we certainly uh, was kind of interesting. Definitely happened really quick. I know it's been in the works for a while, apparently. No one really knew about it, I guess, and except for, I mean, maybe some people were kind of, obviously people involved in this, but uh, we all were revealed, and it happened that day, uh, that USC and UCLA are going going to be headed to the Big Ten in 2024. So we have our, you know, obviously we saw Oklahoma and Texas make the shift to the SEC. That obviously hasn't happened yet, but last year we heard that they were going to be moving to the SEC, and that was huge news. I mean, 
at the NIL, everything happened last year in college sports. Now we have this happening, uh, you know, in the immediate future for the most part. And that this is a, another landscape altering move in the world of college sports, seeing those two Pac-12 teams out there in Southern California make the move to the Big Ten, which doesn't make any sense in terms of the geographical locations. It's going to be very strange, but it should set up a lot of exciting matchups, certainly. I mean, everyone always thinks about football, but I started thinking about basketball because UCLA has been a great basketball school and the Big Ten's got a lot of great teams in college basketball. So that sets up a lot of great matchups. At the end of the day, I believe the Big Ten is at a point where they're probably going to get a pretty big TV contract here pretty soon. I think that the, the teams out there, you know, USC and UCLA definitely wanted to be a part of that. The Pac-12 is not the strongest conference in the world by any means, even though they're coined the Conference of Champions for whatever reason. They don't win a lot of championships at all. They haven't really won a championship in quite some time. I don't think any significant sport that you know is kind of gets popular in terms of like, you know, obviously football and basketball being the biggest college sports out there. So it's going to be a great, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, it's going to be weird, obviously, but I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it's not the last, I don't think, big move we're going to see in terms of conference shifting in college football. So or, a lot or, of, or college sports just in general. But yeah, college football, I feel like always draws the headlines. Yeah, it certainly does. But as you mentioned, USC and UCLA, they're both quality basketball programs over the last handful of years. And so that would be interesting because the Big Ten, we know, has a lot of good college basketball teams already. And so, yeah, it's just really weird, man. I mean, we're just seeing so much new, you know, so much realignment now within the conferences and college sports. You know, you flash back like 10 to 15 years ago and it all made sense. You know, I mean, they made the conferences. I don't know when all these conferences were originally formed, but they, you know, were formed geographically so the teams didn't have to travel as far. And they would play, you know, teams would play teams that are in the same geographical region as them. And now it feels like the more time it goes on they just throw the geographical regions out the window and you know the pack to well you know now we have teams like you know if us now that usc and UCLA are going to the big 10 it makes no sense whatsoever because they play in california now they're gonna be playing teams in the midwest and like you said uh, uh whenever this happened i mean maryland is in the big east and you know if they, i mean excuse me is in the big 10 and so i mean if usc and uc or and or ucl have to play then they maybe have to fly away across the country to do it and it just feels so strange um like i said 10 to 15 years ago everything you know made the big east still and then we had the Big Ten, and it was all everything made sense. Big 12, SEC, everybody was aligned properly. And now, if it was like, as more time goes on, teams don't really care that much. We have Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC. Now we have these two teams going to the Big Ten. We have teams who used to be in the Big East, who you know are now like in the A, who are the American Athletic Conference, like Cincinnati. And then you have them; they're going to the Big 12 here pretty soon. Houston's going to the Big 12 now too. And so there's just so much realignment in college ball and in, in college sports rather right now that I don't know. It just begs the question of what the future of college athletics is going to look like going forward. And, you know, how much longer we're going to have, you know, some of these conferences when teams keep leaving and going to other conferences. And so there's just a lot of uncertainty going forward. The more teams move conferences and the more they allow it to happen, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. But certainly from a from a standpoint of entertainment, I think it would be exciting to see these teams go to the Big Ten for the matchups you could get in college basketball. And then in college football, you have teams like, you know, you could see USC and Ohio State playing every year, which even though USC hasn't been a great program over the past, you know, however long, they do have, you know, Lincoln Riley there now as their head coach. And, and they, there's a lot of excitement around the USC Trojan football going forward. And so if you have to see the Trojan, the Buckeyes playing on the gridiron every year, that would be a really, you know, exciting matchup, certainly. And so there are some exciting matchups to come from this, but sometimes you, you wonder in the back of your mind and what this is going to do for the future of college athletics, and it will be worth watching. 
Yeah, definitely. It's all about, you know, the money. Uh, essentially, it's, it's really what it's all about. And uh, a lot of conference realignment. I mean, Texas and Oklahoma moving to SEC isn't as drastic as this, certainly. I mean, the Aggies are Aggies are in the SEC, obviously, and travel is not really that big of a deal, and they're certainly all. But this is going to be, you know, a pretty big deal in terms of travel. And I just don't think anybody's – I'm sure they've thought about it, obviously. There's no way you couldn't. But uh, the money outweighs that, I guess, at the end of the day, and you just don't really know – what it's going to look like, uh, you know, Penn State too, another team that's way out there in the east. It's going to be a long road trip for both sides too. I wonder how the Big Ten teams feel about this. They're going to have to make trips out to the West Coast, which will be interesting as well. And uh, it's going to affect things too in terms of, like, I mean, the Big Ten games usually in the morning. And we've always heard about, you know, teams from West Coast traveling out east and how the time lag and all that stuff goes into it. So we'll see. They're going to have to adjust to playing in those different time zones in terms of travel. They might have to expedite that a little bit. I mean, who knows? I think that's always something to consider. But obviously uh, there's a lot of money to be made and we don't know the Pac-12's futures in question certainly now there's talks about the Big 12 and the connections there Notre Dame's a big deal because they don't have an actual conference in football or they're going to go to the ACC is the ACC in trouble we haven't really heard a lot about the ACC necessarily they haven't had anybody move or leave yet uh, they're the only conference out of the Power 5 that hasn't had someone join or leave recently um, but certainly it's uh, going to be interesting to see how that goes and I mean this is like I said I don't think it's the last time we'll see some big time programs moving it's only the beginning of what appears to be a quite the conference alignment around college sports moving forward and college athletics and then whatever the ultimate super conferences we might see and it's just the NCAA doesn't really have a lot of control over this the conferences are kind of their own committees in this regard and the Big Ten all of their presidents I think everybody involved in the Big Ten was like unanimously accepted those teams because I mean why not bring them in they're gonna get a big TV contract here pretty soon and be in a pretty good position to compete with the SEC who's obviously their big time conference so it's like Big Ten versus SEC and the, the Big 12 is trying to get more teams they might grab some teams in the Pac-12 if they're trying to hang in there and the ACC just kind of floating out there. We don't really know. And we don't know anything really, but I guess it's kind of fun to speculate. We haven't talked about college athletics that much in general. I obviously talked about college baseball recently quite a bit, but college basketball ended quite a while ago and college football we haven't talked about in a long time as we get closer to that here in the fall. But this is going to be interesting in 2024. It's happening quite a, kind of fast too, honestly. But either way, uh, we'll see how it all shakes out moving forward. Certainly not the end of it. And uh, it's just uh, college athletics is in a very volatile place right now to some extent with a lot of boom or bust to some degree as well. So, hey, we'll see what it go. We'll see how it goes. Felt like it was a good topic to mention here in the double dupe uh, segment. We haven't talked about it, and you know, you and me haven't talked about it at all very much. It was nice to be able to talk about it here with the audience. And last thing here, we saw Baker Mayfield traded to the Panthers today. So obviously, they traded for Deshaun Watson, all the legal issues going on there. Who knows what the suspension looks like as they get closer to hammering that down. But Baker Mayfield was a guy who, you know, wanted to be traded at that point, and you kind of felt like it was going to have to happen at some point. They, I mean, can't imagine him going to training camp with all of this going on, with the fact that they don't even want him anymore. and. I think it was a, it was could have been a p pretty nasty situation to some extent. There's just not a good relationship there anymore. They obviously wanted to trade him, and they found a partner with the Panthers. I think the Panthers gave him like a fifth round pick, a conditional pick or something in 2024. Pretty low, uh, you know, bar. No, obviously, it's a pretty low price to trade for him because he didn't want to be there anymore anyway. They didn't have a whole lot of bargaining power anymore. There wasn't a whole lot of leverage that the Browns had. So he goes to the Panthers. Baker Mayfield's obviously had a great start to his career. Hasn't been nearly as good since. The offense hasn't always been conducive to having passing success and more of a run oriented offense and we know that they didn't have a ton of great uh passing weapons necessarily but anyway uh he'll compete with sam Darnold out there in carolina and we'll see how that goes it's not going to be a, a really exciting quarterback battle i don't think sam Darnold versus baker mayfield that doesn't sound super exciting but it is a quarterback battle and it does uh provide some intrigue there with the panthers 
Yeah, it certainly is going to be exciting to see how this shakes out going forward. I mean, certainly not the uh, not what Browns fans envisioned. All those, you know, a few years ago, whenever Baker Mayfield had a great rookie season and had the most touchdown passes by a rookie quarterback in NFL history and was so fantastic for them in his first season. And there was certainly so much optimism about what he could be for that franchise. But ultimately, it's another uh, another one, you know, come and gone for the Browns. And, you know, they signed Deshaun Watson to that big contract. And now, like you mentioned, there's still a lot of legal things that need to be squared away and he might get suspended for a long time. But after that trade for him, they basically, you know, just kind of said that they were done with Baker Mayfield and then they had to go ahead and find a way to get rid of him because he wasn't going to come back and play for them after all that happened. And so they ended up trading him to the Panthers, who I think, you know, are, is an interesting landing spot for him uh, because there's still talent there. Certainly he was a number one overall pick for a reason all those years ago for Cleveland. And so there's still a lot of talent there for Baker Mayfield. We'll see what he can do with a new team. And I'm sure he's got a, a chip on his shoulder right now, as he always has. Uh, but, you know, he's a guy who, you know, had to transfer in college from Texas Tech to Oklahoma played really well for the Sooners and, you know, won the Heisman and, had, and was the number one overall pick. And so maybe this is kind of like that a little bit. You know, he had his time in Cleveland, played well, maybe wasn't always appreciated. Now he probably has a big chip on his shoulder going to Carolina with a new team and a new foundation and just a new fresh start for Baker Mayfield, who, like I said, there's still talent there for him, and we'll see how he can perform for that team. They, they say it's going to be a quarterback battle right now, but honestly, I don't know how – I feel like he should be able to beat out Sam Darnold because Darnold was there last year and didn't show the Panthers that much for them to be excited about. So I think he's there by default, and sure, he'll go and they'll, and he'll, they'll compete in camp. But certainly it feels like Baker Mayfield should be able to go in there with a chip on his shoulder and play well and win that starting job. And then it would shape up for a very interesting week one when the Browns played the Panthers week one, and he'll have a chance to get revenge on his former team right away. And, you know, we'll see what the Browns look like if Deshaun Watson gets suspended for an extended amount of time, which I would envision that happens. And then I don't know who's going to be starting at for quarterback uh, or, or starting at quarterback quarterback for them because I don't know what their depth chart looks like right now but a lot of interesting things going forward but yeah I think Baker Mayfield to the Panthers is a good move for Carolina because they didn't give up very much for him and there's still talent there and maybe they can kind of uh, get him back on track because I think he used to be a good quarterback in this in this league I think it would be Jacoby Brissett, I believe, is the quarterback there, the backup quarterback for the Browns, I believe. And that would be a, be a viable replacement, but obviously a pretty big step down from Deshaun Watson if he's still as good as he once was, which you would think he would be uh, because he's healthy and they signed him with that huge contract. And so anyway, we'll see how that gets squared away again. I think the franchise tag stuff's happening here pretty soon as well, which I mentioned last week. So that might draw more headlines when we move into next week, depending on how that goes. But in the NFL, you know, it's getting closer. We're not that far away. Training camps are starting in a couple of weeks, and then we'll have – the first preseason game less than a month away with the Hall of Fame game between the Raiders and the Jaguars. That'll be obviously very exciting. We'll be done with this uh, season, this podcast, by the time that all comes around. But certainly we're getting closer, and this was a nice little opportunity to talk about some college athletics with college football probably being the headline a little bit, but I feel like for that move, more college basketball in my eyes. And then Baker Mayfield obviously traded the Panthers should be interesting. You make up a good point. It probably will win the battle. And I like the whole college thing. He's always got a chip on his shoulder. And the last thing I'll say is he was hurt with the Browns, you know, pretty bad at times. He had that shoulder injury last year that really hampered him all year long. Uh, for a reason, like, he just he had a hard time staying healthy, and that didn't help anything for him. I think if he's healthy now, there's a chance that he can find it again, and they certainly hope that they can keep him healthy moving forward. And if he is the long-term answer, at least the short-term answer or whatever, uh, there's some kind of upside there, and they're going to try to see if they can find something. And you just never know. It offered us some news here in the Double Dupe segment as we had a couple of topics there to discuss. We'll go ahead and finish it up now, and I'll let you uh, kind of do your thing before you bring it back to me. Yeah, I'll go and wrap it up here for me. It's just like a typical Double Dupe Sports Podcast fashion. Then we came to this episode thinking it was going to be our shortest of the season. I, I certainly believed that we had that Of, of the season? I think so. Or did we have... <laughs> 
I don't know if it's going to be the shortest of the season. I think we've had some shorter. What was I, the shortest episode of this season? I feel like they've all been like an hour and 20. I feel like most have been like an hour, 10, yeah. hour, 40. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I guess you're going to go look at it real fast. Um, either way, I felt like coming I mean, into this episode that this was going to be a, a rather short one for the most part. I felt like we could have kept it around an hour or so if we could, you know, work through things uh, in a good manner. But I guess we just naturally kind of elaborated on everything a little bit more than we needed to and just continued to roll along. I knew that when the NBA segment took about 30 minutes uh, or that when we finished talking about the NBA, we were about 30 minutes into this episode that it was going to be longer than we had originally thought. Uh, but at the same time, it is what it is, and I certainly feel like we did a good job rolling through each topic and covering everything very extensively, and I think we did a, a, a solid job here for the most part, you know, even though it was uh, pretty lengthy. And so I, I at least feel good about that, and ultimately, that's uh, that's not too bad. And were you going to say something? Did you look at the time? I guess I could just, I'll drop it in real fast. Yeah, it was like, I guess our shortest episode this season was an hour and 10 minutes and one second with Beantown versus the Bay. So that was the first of June. So this is our first July episode. And I don't know, I guess it could have been that short. I don't know. I think you probably expected more than I did. You know how we are. We had, we had a lot of, we had, I guess, again, the topics were more than we thought. The news and notes always take a long time. At the end of the day, we did everything the best we could and just ended up being really long. It is what it is. It's been like that for a long time. We're almost done with this season, this podcast, so we're not going to change anything too much now. Yeah, I'm not worried about it too much. I mean, obviously, we're almost done with this thing anyways, and it's not like that big of a deal, but it's just kind of like our typical, it's kind of like, that's us, you know? I mean, we, we always end up talking longer than we want, than we think we are going to, but I think we covered everything very well, and I feel good about what we're able to do on this episode for the most part. I hope you guys all enjoyed it out there who were listening, uh, and with that being said, I thank you all for listening uh, to, uh, rather, I just want to say we, we both thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Double D Sports Podcast. If you listen to the whole thing, uh, just like always, that would be uh, incredible. I think that would be a great accomplishment because I know it's, it's you know, it's a long episode, so it takes a lot to sit down and listen to it. I mean, you can break it up into multiple, you know, trips if you go like you know, on a commute or something. But ultimately, if you listen to the whole thing, we appreciate you for that. Uh, that's really uh, a great thing that you did for us. And even if you listen to parts of it, we appreciate that too. Because again, anytime that you spend listening to the podcast, we appreciate that. Because you don't have to take time in your day to listen to us. But if you do it, we thank you for that. And we certainly are appreciative. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify and Apple po- or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to our podcast. We certainly appreciate it when you guys do that for us. So please do that if you haven't already. And then please follow us on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Doopy underscore Austin and on Instagram at AU underscore Doopy 10. And of course, Tyler will plug his handles here in just a moment. You can follow him on his social media plat- handles as well uh, if you don't already. And so that's going to be it for me on this episode. I know that Again, it was lengthy, but I think we did a good job rolling through everything properly, and I feel pretty good about the and I feel pretty good about the way that we were able to cover everything. Um, as we go forward in the next week of, or, or so of sports, we certainly still have a lot to look forward to. Uh, we do have NBA summer league action, as you mentioned, which should be exciting to see some of the young guys in action for the first time against their fellow uh, young against their kind of against their peers, you know, fellow guys who, who just recently got drafted and younger guys in the league who are trying to get things going. And so the summer league action is, is always exciting whenever you're able to tune into it a little bit. I think it should be fun. To see some of those young guys in action, so we have that to look forward to, and we have, and then we have golf with the Barbasol Championship, and also the Genesis Scottish Open, which should be fun to see how those uh, tournaments unfold. And then, of course, we have MLB that continues to roll along with games every single day and a lot of great action here uh, in MLB as we approach the All-Star break, which should be fun. We have Phase 2 of the All-Star voting ending on Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and then we will be able to shortly after that on Sunday discover the All-Star game starting lineups and ultimately uh, the rosters shortly after that as well. And so it should be a lot of fun to see how that goes. You know, in addition to just having the games each and every day and watching those and enjoying that, we get to see the All-Star game rosters revealed here very soon. 
which should be fun for the all-star game happening again on July 19th, which should be a blast. So ultimately that is it for me. I look forward to all of those things here in the next week or so of sports. I look forward to seeing all that stuff unfolds and transpires. And ultimately I look forward to speaking with you again next week about all of that and even more right here on the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. And now I'll send it back to Tyler to finish it out here tonight. Yeah, you really nailed on the head with all the things to look forward to. So I won't touch on that for too long. But you can follow me on social media, as always, on Instagram and Twitter, at tdoop 25 um, Looking forward to this weekend with, uh, you know, I, I know I started the episode kind of, I mentioned that I was looking forward to some of the things we had going on this week, and then I kind of remember there's not that much going on anymore. But I'm always looking forward to watching Major League Baseball and just seeing all the great things that can happen on a night-in and night-out basis. So uh, I'll look forward to seeing whatever kind of notes. I know we already have a number of notes tonight I think that we're going to get to next week. Obviously, we'll have you know plenty of stuff moving forward, and uh, that'll be a great segment, as it always is for us next week, we would expect. And then again... Um, as you mentioned, the phase two voting ends on Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, which I'll make sure I get a ballot in for that before uh, it's all said and done. Hopefully, you know, Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez hopefully uh, get their spots at second base and DH respectively for my Astros to get those starting nods. would be awesome. I'm sure we'll have a number of pitchers represented. The Marlins are going to have, you know, Sandy Alcantara represented certainly and hopefully he gets to start there in the all-star game. And then uh, hopefully Jazz Chisholm gets that second base nod and then has a chance uh, for my Marlins to be the starter there at the Keystone spot as long as he's healthy. But anyway, uh, I'll definitely get my ballots in for that. Hopefully, get you know a lot of great stuff from that this weekend. But certainly, plenty of MLB action. I look forward to trying to watch as much of that Genesis Scottish Open as I can to some extent because I think it'll be interesting. I think the field's going to be great. I think it gives us a little bit of a, uh, a prelude and a little bit of a preview to some extent as well of what the Open Championship is going to look like as well next week. So as for next week, we have a, you know, a number of great content. We'll talk about the NBA maybe a little bit next week, depending on whatever happens in the offseason, uh, depending on free agency and trades and all that. There's certainly that's not really up to us. The content can just come to us, and we might have some, might not have any. Certainly we'll get to that next week and maybe talk about summer league action a little bit, but I can't guarantee that. News and notes, obviously. We'll talk about plenty of all-star stuff next week. I think we might have an MLB update. We'll we're not completely sold on that yet, but we might have an MLB update episode as well as we look at the standings as we enter uh, the All-Star break. Uh, you know, not obviously next week, but the week after that. And then, of course, we'll do plenty of previewing with the Open Championship with our top tens, our, our, our winners, of course. Our top tens, our sleepers, similar to what we did with the U.S. Open in terms of previewing a major championship. So plenty of stuff to look forward to next weekend and also on the podcast next week. So plenty of content as we get closer to ending our season here and our, ultimately our careers here on this podcast. But uh, for now, we're still going along. We're going strong. we still got plenty to talk about uh, moving forward. And we hope you guys join us next week right here on the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. Mm-hmm.